living proof there's a God in heaven. Because man could not have invented a sport so spectacular and great. But but March Madness is the greatest postseason in uh, of any sport imaginable. Furman upsets the Virginia Cavaliers. Um, Princeton. How many brackets? Upsets Arizona. Yeah, that goes up a lot of brackets there. Um, you you kind of wonder if you're a Tiger or a Gamecock about the um, the coaching skills of Bob Ritchie, who actually went to school in Florence. And I'm at Florence Christian. He's been a guest on Wake Up Carolina. When it was known as Good Morning PD, he came in talking about a basketball camp. Right. Um, my, my wife is friends of the family. So one day she asked me, hey, there's this young man who wants to come on your radio show and promote his basketball camp. And I'm like, oh, young man coming on the show promoting a basketball camp. Well, that young man is now um, one of 32 teams standing or coaching one of 32 teams left standing. Well, actually, more than that. By the end of the day today, there'll be 32 teams um, left standing. And, um, I, you know, I would say South Carolina, pull for Furman. I mean, we're all about the state, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. some of you Gamecock Tiger fence straddlers, you know, say <laughs> you're all for the state and you don't pull against the Gamecocks or the Tigers. I ain't buying that if you're a real fan. But anyway, um, Furman would be a little different. Walford would be a little different. Um, College of Charleston, th- did they win or not? They were behind a bit late in I the game. Um, but, uh, the, yeah, the, uh, the, the Paladins win. I don't know about the um, – is it the College of Charleston Cougars? Were they made to change that name, or is that still politically correct? <laughs> as far enough? as I know, it is. Okay, the but same. Um, I want to I want to congratulate Reb for choosing to put March Madness on the uh, on the air. Um, I was in my truck a good bit of the afternoon yesterday, and um, I mean it was fun. They'd cut into one game and cut out of another, and cut into one and cut out of another. I mean, obviously they have feature games with some of the marquee brands, uh, Duke being one. Um, I think they, um, just a couple of other teams that they played more of the uh, the action, but they kept cutting into the Virginia Furman game. Looks like College of Charleston lost to San Diego State yesterday. Okay, I thought they were behind a yep. little bit late in the game. Uh, once again, we love the underdog. We, we love the Cinderella story, and nothing allows for the Cinderella story more than uh, March Madness. When so, you talk about it being on the radio, again, it's a programming note that affects listeners to Live 95, 95.3 in But it'll Florence. have a big effect today, right? Right, yes. The Gamecock starts. baseball team plays. Right, so Gamecocks are normally on ESPN Radio in the Florence listing area. Uh, well, we've moved Gamecock baseball to 95.3 for the next couple of weekends. Um, so tonight, 6 o'clock, you can tune in to 95.3 to hear Gamecock baseball. Uh March Madness continues on our ESPN channel, 96.3 in the Florence area. Airtime noon today, and it's a, I mean, it's a 12-hour broadcast all Good day. deal. And the podcast is up and running, right? Yep. The, uh, yep. the, the one with no Alan Wilson. The, no, yeah, no Stop Lots is up and running. It's been um, downloaded. It's been... <laughs> we published it. Published is the word Rev keeps using. I don't understand. Is that the proper terminology? Uh, yeah, that's the one I've always heard. Okay, so we published it yesterday. Um, it's an interview with Alan Wilson. It goes into pretty deep. Um, conversations about the Murdoch trial. So um, it's it's up. It's on Spotify. It's on YouTube. Um, you folks who watch a lot of podcasts, um, you know, please yourself by consuming our a feeble attempt at a podcast. Yeah, just just on normal podcast listening outlets, just search for No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. And if you want to go directly to the Facebook channel, or sorry, the YouTube channel, it's youtube.com slash at No Stop Lights. We'll take you right there. You can subscribe. Good deal. 843-661-0937 is our number. I'm not going to spend the entire day 
talking about banking and Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Um, we have a star-studded lineup today. You ready? We do. At 7.30, we'll have Congressman Russell Fry. At 8.05, we'll have our delegation, um, as they normally are here on uh, Friday mornings. And at 9.05, Rev scored a big one yesterday. Vivek Ramaswamy, the, um, the, the very different sort of presidential candidate uh, in the Republican Party, will be with us at 9.05. Um, we're we're going to try to pin him down for a podcast visit. I mean, he'll, he'll be making his way into South Carolina, but he's, um, he's one of these second-tier candidates, no question about it. He's a long shot, no question about it. But he's had as much content, and he's much. I mean, he's 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 had a grasp of the issues and a um and an answer to to, to most of the issues that Republican politicians normally um don't. You know, it's it's almost like the the skilled and mature politician won't answer the question. The guy that's coming out of nowhere will, and that's why they're always a lot more fun. You know, the Trumps of the world, the Vivek Ramaswamy's of the world. I mean, these guys live in a world where you answer the question. The, um, the Mike Pence's of the world who've been in public service uh, uh, politics for a long, long time, they won't answer the question. They've got these soundbody phrases that really don't mean much of any Word salads is what they are. But, uh, but Ramaswamy has made, in my humble opinion, more of a splash than Nikki Haley has. I mean, he's not the name that Nikki is. Nikki is a former governor, former ambassador to the UN, um, former board member at Boeing. But Vivek Ramaswamy, to me, has made... Um, a, a more interesting splash than Governor Haley has. Let's go to the phone. Breeze is our first call in the morning. Hey, Breeze. You know, uh, those big old racist white supremacist Republicans uh, are probably, you know, just to prove they aren't racist, of course, are probably going to embrace that guy because I'm going to tell you something. The guy's smart. He's real smart. And you know what? Uh, I like every. I, I like a lot of the stuff he's saying. Um, also, going back to this uh, whole banking thing, it, it's become now more evident than what the whole deal is. Is you had a bunch of rich white liberals that had millions of dollars in a bike. That was not your normal bike. I'm sure you found this out by now too. You kind of heard heard about it. Ninety percent of them had um, over a million dollars in the bike. So this wasn't your typical small bike, your typical regional bike. But what they'll do is they'll take the bikes like the ones in our area, Ralph, when I say our area, I mean Florence, that have done things right, and they're going to make them bail out a bunch of liberal white Democrats that Dagona uh, didn't manage their bike right, you know? And so that's just the bottom line. But anyway, kid, you know, uh, I was getting kind of bored of all this stuff, and I was just wondering, uh, how have your workouts been going since six thirteen in the morning? We ain't got much else to talk about. I'm good. Um, yeah, I'm on a roll right now. I mean, I've changed up some things. I'm eating better, getting a lot more protein, and I, I'm, you know, I'm probably um, my workouts are probably as productive as they've been in about two years. Good. The protein kid is the key. The protein's always the key. It always has been the key. I would. I knew you were going to say that. That's why I lied to you and said I was getting a lot more protein. <laughs> No, it, it, I mean, <laughs> no, be, when in doubt, seriously, kid, when in doubt, eat protein. When you're going back for seconds, when in doubt, eat protein. When in doubt, eat protein. Figure out ways during the day to snack old protein. You dig what I'm saying? I do. Protein is the building blocks of muscles. And also, use more dumbbells. Use more dumbbells. Don't you? At some point, you got to get away. As we get older, 
you can't do the barbell all the time, and you can't do the Smith machine and the other machines all the time. So figure out ways to incorporate dumbbells into your um, exercises as much as possible, especially on pressing movements. That's your tip for today, brother. Gotcha. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Dumbbells and protein. Now, now the Got one it. thing, and, Write it down. And, and we'll move on, but the one thing that I've stopped doing, Breeze will be proud of this. I don't, Riff's heard me say this. I ain't loading my spine anymore. You paid the price well, last I mean, time you just, did. A squat rack. I mean, they've got a machine now. You can wrap a belt around your waist, and, and it takes it doesn't load your spine. Um, to people my age, I mean, unless you're just extremely physically fit, I guess I'm not, don't load your spine. Young bucks can do that. Young ladies can do that. If you're born late December 1963, made a song about that, Rev, you don't need to load um, your spine. But, um, but yeah, protein is a necessary nutrient for someone um, trying to exert themselves in some sort of uh, in some sort of workout. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville, good morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. Since we're going to stop talking about this banking thing, I decided to call in early. Well, Joe, I could talk about it for a month, but I don't know that our listeners are that interested in it. I mean, to I, me, it's so intriguing what is happening. I, it, it is, and I'm – I'm beginning to question what Congress does because it does them no good to make laws. They passed Dodd-Frank, so this wouldn't happen again, right? They they passed the thing, and they're supposed to, whenever they fall into this category, take an orderly liquidation of assets. They're supposed to seize the bank, and seize the holding company of the bank, and they make all the take all the holdings and everything, make the depositors whole, make the investors whole to the point that they invested into the bank, not their profits. You know, when you invest in something and you say you invest a thousand dollars and you make a thousand dollars, well, you're only going to get that thousand dollars back. You're going to lose that you know, above the top. But they wiped all the investors out, just like they did with GM. And they weren't supposed to do that. Now all these pension funds of the states and these overseas uh, pension funds that invested in this bank, which is quite a bit, they're they're wiped out. And and that's not the way Dodd-Frank was written. Dodd-Frank was written to orderly liquidate assets. And... They're they're driving investments away from these banks, and it's almost like they want to drive you into the big banks. So maybe that's something we could ask the congressman. What what exactly? Because they pass laws and they don't go by. So what what's their what's their function? Why do we even bother electing people if they're not going to follow the laws that they pass? They they become irrelevant after a while. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Well, I, mean, I don't know if anybody saw this, but yesterday, Senator from Oklahoma, can't think of his name, but he asked Janet Yellen if they were going to um, now insure deposits regardless of the size. And her answer was um, only in large banks that were systemic, that would cause systemic problems to the financial system. So so if I'm a, if I'm a wealthy person and I live in Florence, and I've got a great relationship with a local and regional or regional bank. But now I know that my deposits are secure in a big bank. 
that would cause systemic problems or systemic issues within the banking system, why would I keep my money in the smaller regional bank? I mean, you just, you just created an enormous competitive advantage for the bigger banks. I mean, in other words, if you're wealthy, why wouldn't you keep all of your money in a bank that would, at the end of the day, create some sort of systemic issue to our banking system? Why would you keep the money in the local bank that has been so good to you for all these years? Really, one that's subject to the actual rules of the FDIC. Sure. When apparently those rules don't matter well, if you're me, a big bank. But but it's it's like, I mean, here's, the, here's the phraseology of the so Democrats. It's... A, it's Misincentivizing well, I mean, the whole the Democrats system. want the wealthy to pay their fair share unless they're wealthy that bundle money or buy into this green energy agenda, energy transition space, climate tech and sustainability clients, um, climate startups. This bank was notorious for being involved in those sorts of business. Look, guys, I'm not opposed to energy transition. I'm not opposed to climate tech and sustainability clients. I'm not a cl- opposed to climate startups, but treat them like you do the farmers. Treat them like you do the factory workers. Treat them like you do everybody else. And Janet Yellen answered the senator from Oklahoma's question by saying, because he basically said, does this mean everybody's deposits are guaranteed? Because if that's, I mean, we've state, I mean, we've, we've basically taken over the banking system. I mean, if the federal government's on the hook for every bank failure and the depositors that lose their money, then we've nationalized our banking system. But there's not a lot of difference in America and some of these um, socialist nations. There ain't a lot of difference anyway. But this would be another further, another step further in that direction. But she said that the only banks that will fall under the purview of those, I guess, um, new new laws or I mean, I don't know if they're a law, just new, made up over the weekend All requirements. Yeah. Are- well, I mean, it's not even a policy rep. I mean, they got together uh, over the weekend. And I'm talking about the Fed Secretary, the Treasury Secretary, and the FDIC Chairman. I mean, they got together over the weekend and just decided this is what we're going to do. I mean, there's no policy here. <laughs> I mean, you make it up as you go. And um, and they did that over the weekend. But, but the point I'm trying to make here, let, let's say that I started a business and I've been enormously successful. And my success has been predicated on that, that great relationship I've had with that regional or community bank. And my, and my friend's son now banks with my son. I mean, it's generational. The, the relationship is so intense. And I've got several million dollars in the bank because we've done extremely well in business. All of a sudden, I find out that my deposits are at risk because my bank is not of systemic importance or significance to the system. I mean, I love my banker friend. I may buy him a Harley or, or, or do something nice for him, send his family on a vacation the day before I take my money out of his bank and put it in Wells Fargo or put it in J.P. Morgan or put it in Bank of America or Citibank. Why? Because there's another set of rules for those people. And, you know, we're going to, I mean, that, to me, that's, I mean, any logical business person would make that decision. I mean, they would say, Joe, I really appreciate everything you've ever done for me. But this banking system has me concerned. I'm not sure it's as I'm stable as I'm being told it is. And I can't let my six or eight million dollars be put at risk when I've got an alternative. So tomorrow morning, I want you to transfer every penny I have, except two hundred fifty thousand dollars, to Bank of America, to Wells Fargo, to J.P. Morgan. I mean, that's what we've done with the banking system. And Yellen is so oblivious to to to, to the um I don't know the the two sets of rules or laws. I mean, once again, read they're not laws, they're not policies, they're just kind of inclinations. We're inclined to do this this weekend. 
We, we met about this over uh, the past weekend. I did see some stories um, k- kind of um, kind of going down the road. Jeff went down about um, Peter Thiel being the kind of the instigator of the bank run and whether or not he had inside information. But, but I've read several stories because, you know, I'm a Thiel, kind of, kind of an acolyte. Mm-hmm. Thiel basically got suspicious when a transfer didn't go through the way it normally does. And Teal's no dummy. And once they had a hiccup, quote unquote, in the transfer, I mean, he called the folks at Founders Fund and said, get all of our money out of there. Now, now there was $50 million that he couldn't get out. So some sort of um, issue. So he lost about $50 million of his money. Now, once again, he'll probably be made whole via the government backstop. So a libertarian is taken care of by a socialist. Wonder if Teal takes the $50 million or not. You know, I was thinking about what what sort of world yeah. do you live in when you get the big money out, but you fail to get the $50 million out. <laughs> you know what I mean? As a matter of priority, I got the big money out, right. but damn it, I couldn't get that $50 million out in time. It got stuck in the, um. Eh, you know, we'll make that up somewhere down the road. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, one of the revelations in my world has been, I mean, for a long time, I mean, as a young person in a small town, I mean, I believed that there were far more capable people out there that went to Duke, that went to to Stanford, that went to Vanderbilt, that went to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Columbia and Dartmouth. And I'm convinced now that, I mean, yeah, they're, they're plenty smart, I would imagine, academically, but but I don't know that they have a real-world understanding of how things work. And Janet Yellen yesterday, I mean, there's no way Yellen should have said that. I mean, if I'm the Treasury Secretary, we're all in trouble. But but if I'm the Treasury Secretary, I mean, I've got sense enough to not ever go down that road because, Rev, imagine, I mean, if the senator from Oklahoma asked the Treasury Secretary uh, a question about, you know, are we going to guarantee all depositors? And the Treasury Secretary says, no, only in the big banks. Well, I mean, some wealthy person with a lot of money in a regional bank or a small community bank is going, wow, okay, that's a big deal to me. I mean, I've got five and a half, six million dollars. I've done extremely well in business. I've got a great relationship with my bank, but but I can't take that chance. He calls his banker. Hey, you free for lunch tomorrow? Yeah. Um, he sits down with him and says, look, man, I heard the Treasury Secretary say that my six million dollars in your bank is not guaranteed unless it's in a bank that has a systemic impact on the entire banking system, and your bank doesn't qualify as that. So I need you to take all of my money out, except $250,000, and move to Wells Fargo. Well, let's play this out another um, leg. You ready? What if that bank has invested in some of these, um, you know, some of these fixed-rate investment instruments, treasury bills, mortgage-backed securities? I mean, what, what if that bank all of a sudden gets on the radar uh, of, you know, being concerned about? How many, I mean, once again, I don't know. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank was different in that. It had a higher percentage of its deposits um, invested in fixed-rate income, um, in, excuse me, fixed-rate investments and um, T-bills and mortgage-backed security, less loaned out. I would imagine community banks lend out a higher percentage of their money. But but what if, I mean, is it, they've got some hedge. I mean, of course they do. So, so But what if, wonder how many regional and community banks have somewhat of a mismatch bond portfolio or investment portfolio like the others? And all of a sudden, today we wake up. And, and we, you know, let me ask you a question, Reb. Let's say you were a guy who had $10 million in a community bank. I mean, you've done real well in business. You made a lot of money. You, you, um, you're, you're in the one-tenth of 1%. I like this scenario but, so I mean, far. But all of your money is in a community bank. 
The community bank helped you build your business. I mean, you've been in business 40 years. That bank has been with you every step of the way. When, when things have not been good, they've been there for you. When things were really good, they've been there for you. But all of a sudden, you've got to decide. The Treasury Secretary, not some dude on the radio, the Treasury Secretary said to a member of Congress that we're only going to secure deposits in banks that have systemic implications to the entire system. What do you do with your money? I think you have to look at you have to protect yourself. You didn't get wealthy by being stupid. That's right. I mean, you got to be a smart and shrewd business guy. And you sit down with your banker and say, man, I love you to death. And I want to keep the 250 there. But I've got to move my money into one of these big banks where I know it to be protected because I'm just not, I'm not sure they're telling me the truth about how stable or not yeah. the banking Especially system in America is. if things are, you know, wishy-washy or flaky enough that you're even asking the question. Bingo. Let's go to the phone. John and Lamar, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Look, um, you know, I'm kind of old school, and, and you know, I like to simplify things here. So why don't we just call this what it is? You know, I mean, this is rich politicians protecting their donors and, the, and their buddies in the, in the private sector with poor people's money. I mean, it's, it's, they're taking it from the, the, the middle and lower class people with taxes and everything to pay and keep the – upper class and the rich people, you know, safe. I mean, it, it, it seems to me, I mean, I might be wrong. I, hell, my wife tells me I'm wrong all the time, but, you know. Uh, no, you're all over it, John. I mean, you're, you're all over it. I mean, you are over the target, no question about it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it, it just, it, 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 it's enslaving. It's enslaving anybody that don't have a few million dollars in the bank. It, it, it's enslaving these people to take care of those people that do. And, and you know, it's going to be a central bank, and once we have a central bank, then you know the whole world's going to hell, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, anyway, uh, Ken, I'm going to tell you something. I watch your podcast on YouTube. Great job! But I'm going to tell you right now, if it wasn't for your accent, and I didn't know who you were, I would swear you were one of them Italians in New York. You can't talk with that's your hands, buddy. <laughs> You're right about that. I knock things down. I'm knocking bottles. Up. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm knocking bottles of water down, and I'm knocking as long as you can't see the spit. That's the only concern I've got. The right. visual part of this, I don't mind you seeing my hands run about because I'm. I mean, I'll knock water down and coffee down, and I just don't. You see the um the high volume of spit once I get real excited about what it is I'm discussing you, you, or talking you know, about. That's kind of interesting to think about because listeners that have listened to the show, you know, they don't obviously see the visual they don't know what you look like when you're talking and that your your hands i mean i do it too i mean i'm doing it right now yeah. my hands are up in the air um it's just a natural thing for me and, and you i guess but but to see that and it's probably a, a little a look inside there and the cameras hopefully aren't the cameras are good but hopefully they're not that good where you know the spit the spittle flying out of your mouth is going to be picked up by the lens well i, I, I try i try to um curtail the volume of um of spit. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> and you weren't before? No, no, not really. Okay. Just... Unless somebody's in here. <laughs> right. Gotcha. Uh, here's Bill and Sumter listening to WTXY. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken. So I was listening to uh, PBS radio this morning, or NPR, I'm sorry. And they, they had an a interview on there with this company in India. Now, this company in India was invested in this, this Silicon Valley bank. Okay, so my question is, are they going to... Several startup companies in India were affected by this. So, I mean, if are we going to make another country hole out of this? 
And that's, you know, that's all I got. Thanks, man. Thank you. I mean, it's not just India. I mean, it's some Chinese interest invested in the bank. Gavin Newsom had some money invested in the bank. It's kind of interesting. Um, the Democrats want the wealthy to pay their fair share unless they're politically aligned. Uh, the majority of the money invested, excuse me, the, the, the majority of deposits, Rev and I did the math the other day. Um, 50 is 130, it's 57. Anyway, whatever number, the, the amount of deposits divided by the number of accounts equaled $4.4 million per account. Um, so it's not your normal average everyday bank. Um, other than the suburbs of Washington, uh, you know, Silicon Valley would probably be the most affluent area in America. Uh, Manhattan, certain places in Manhattan, I would imagine. Some of these major metropolitan areas and zip codes would be very, very, very affluent. But Palo Alto and the Silicon Valley, you know, um, Northern California, I mean, that, that's a very affluent area, tech startups and, you know, gazillionaires and all these other sorts of stories. But, yeah, but there, there were a lot of foreign investments um, made in in that bank. Let's do this if you don't mind. Yesterday, Reggie and I had a discussion about what we know and what we don't know. And there are a lot of things I don't know. I've learned the hard way. They're, 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 the smart thing to do is admit what you don't know. But when Jeffrey Gunlock says, I don't know, <laughs> I get real alarmed because Gunlock basically says, look, I have a pretty good track record of, um, of, of predicting what's coming next. I'm not always right, but we've been right a lot more than we've been wrong. But I want you to hear um, Jeffrey Gunlock, who I think um, Reggie said is the Bond King in America today, very respected, almost revered um, economic uh, analyst and CNBC contributor. Uh, let's go to that, Rev. It's about five minutes long. I want to get your take on what one of these experts see out there. Capital, he joins us now in an exclusive interview. Uh, desperate times call for desperate measures. Jeffrey, I appreciate you being with us. Well, thanks, Scott. It's good to be here. Yeah. What, um, what is your reaction to all this? Well, I've been thinking a lot over the past year or so about a quote from Mark Twain, which I'll paraphrase. It's, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you think you know for sure that just ain't so. And why I'm bringing this up is it occurs to me that all of us, even old geezers like me, who've been in the business for over 40 years, have experienced nothing but gradually, uh, systematically declining interest rates. So interest rates 40 years ago, you know, it was the early 80s, and we had uh, Volcker come around and slay the inflation dragon, and interest rates started to fall. I remember when I started in this business and people thought a few years into my career that when rates got to 10%, they thought they were low. And then when they got to 8%, they thought they were low, even though the inflation rate was at 4% and falling. And so what I'm getting at here, Judge, is we all think that we know things based upon our experience and we try to extrapolate them to help us navigate the future. But all that we've experienced, even an old guy like me, for 40 years has been either relatively stable or declining interest rates. And so now that uh, template I've been thinking about might not be that valuable in helping to navigate what's going on now that interest rates are rising very rapidly as they've done over the past year. And I've been thinking that, uh, you know, maybe that this interest rate rise uh, that hasn't really occurred for most people's career kind of blindsided people into thinking, hey, here are these treasuries that are down. There was a moment when the 30-year treasury bond from its peak to its trough was down 50 percent. 
And until about a week ago, it was still down in the 40%. And whenever you have a very large asset class, particularly one that's viewed to be safe, and it's even uh, compelled, institutions are compelled to own due to regulation dropping that much, it's only sensible to think there's going to be some sort of fallout. So uh, this is a very important theme. I think a lot of the things that we've come to think that we know just ain't so when it comes to rising interest rates. And obviously, that's the case with this uh, regional bank crisis. And I suspect it's also going to be the case for uh, credit, particularly very far down the capital structure in credit, like the lowest tier junk bonds and bank loans, where everybody thinks they know what the, what the default cycle looks like and how it develops. But that was only due to falling interest rates. Now that interest rates are much higher, um, maybe it's going to be more difficult for bonds to be rolled over at higher interest rate levels. I mean, has, has a high-yield bond ever really matured? Uh, aren't they all just default or refinance because there's uh, stable and a step function lower in interest rates, and so companies over and over again got the ability to refinance, but they can't refinance now. So one thing that I'm thinking about in the markets uh, is that uh, with this sharp rise in short-term interest rates and obvious stresses developing in the system, we should probably be, be very nervous about the lowest tiers of floating rate debt, like triple C rated bank loans, which uh, we're, we're uh, having to pay about, I don't know, eight or nine, uh, six or eight percent, and now it's more like 10 or 12 percent with interest rates higher. So uh, one thing that is curious about the last few days is the speed and uh, I would say uh, abandon with which the response came. I mean, it took forever back in the global financial crisis for people to uh, change the rules and uh, you know say, say that, okay, it's okay to default on mortgages and this type of thing, even though uh, it's against the prospectus of the, of, of the securities and so forth. Here, we've already got this amazing situation where the Fed is accepting uh, bonds that are worth 70, 80, 60, 50, 55 cents on the dollar, and they're accepting them against loans at par. So the rapidity of the response is is impressive, I guess, uh, but also it, it, it suggests an inflationary outcome. The Fed doesn't have any money. The Fed is losing money. Uh, uh, Dick Beauvais was on CNBC Asia uh, yesterday, late in the afternoon, talking about how the Fed's net worth, if you actually mark them in the market, is negative $1.1 million. So the only way to actually backstop securities that are worth, you know, 70 cents on the dollar and loan 100 cents on the dollar against them is to print money. And so this is why I think that we have the yield curve movement that we have today, where the, the long bond is at this moment up in price less than the two-year treasury. So the yield curve is steepening tremendously. That's just kind of an interesting, I mean, he goes on and on and on, but uh, I mean, he'd bore you and I to death. We'd. I mean, he lost me about halfway through that with some of the uh, intricacies anyway. But, but I mean, to, to me, he's implying, and this is what freaks me out. To me, he's almost saying, it's been a scam. I've just been real good at it. I mean, nothing about this is real. To believe the Fed can forever print money, that we can go deeper and deeper in debt, we can prop up the banking system, we can, um, you know, we can shut down businesses and give people money to not work. I mean, it, it's not one single issue, Reb. It's, it's a multitude of things that I think we've gotten wrong 
as a nation, as a world. American Central Bank is not the only central bank. I don't know if you saw this or not, but um, Credit Suisse was loaned money by uh, some central bank over there. And it's just, I mean, to me, Gunlock is saying, he's not saying this because it would be almost indicting of his profession, but but in a weird way saying, I mean, it's all been a scam since, you know, Volcker did what he did. We've all enjoyed, or you know, lowering of rates. I mean, we've probably had some run-ups and uh, but but from uh, what Volcker, that would have been in 70, 80 or, uh, 81 or 82 yeah. when, you know, the um, the Carter malaise and inflation so, through the so roof. So 40-something years, which is basically a, a, generation, a, a generation of workers. It's right. a career. I mean, it's a career. Nobody in finance, and that's where I go to the financialization of the economy. And, and I'm not insulting anybody, and I'm certainly not personally attacking anybody, but if you've lived in a sector of the economy that, that is related to the financialization of the economy— You've probably done fairly well, not because you're smarter and better and get up earlier than anybody, but but the odds are in your favor. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You've had, by and large, declining interest rates. You've had, by and large, um, an activist fed. And, you know, as I said, my father, when business was really good, he'd say, I can't get out of the way of money. Well, I mean, in the financialization of the economy, the, the, those who are close to the financial sector, those who have, um, you know, kind of married government or, or kind of hitch themselves to the to the government spending wagon i mean you've done unbelievably well but it's been make-believe it's been phony it can't continue and this may be the beginning of the end i don't know i don't have any idea what what next week or the week after looks like but but i do know that one day we're going to get to the beginning of the end 843-661-0937 back in a few 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go back to this content of um of elections. That there's a big story in Republican politics today that Trump can't win a general. I mean, there's no way DeSantis is more likely to beat Biden or whomever runs as a Democrat than Donald Trump is. Um, the polling kind of shows that. I mean, it really and truly um, it does. Now, the one thing the polling doesn't take into account is how many Trump voters will not come back. In other words, 100% of Trump voters are coming back if Trump's the nominee. Now, now, some of the DeSantis voters won't. Some of the Nikki Haley voters won't. Obviously, some of the Mike Pence and, you know, the, the establishment candidate voters won't. Um, so I think it's unfair to say that, you know, Trump can't win w- without adding the disclaimer that can anybody else win without Trump's voters. Um, that, that's such a conundrum yeah. they find themselves in. Um, nobody's indicated one thing or another. I mean, the Trump world has not said, hey, we're okay with DeSantis. I mean, I think as we work through the primary, you'll begin to have some of those kind Now, the candidates won't. I mean, the candidates want to win. And I've already seen the strategy. I mean, the, the, the strategy is Trump defines DeSantis as not being America first enough. I mean, that, that's the strategy. I mean, he'll do it in the oddest way imaginable. It'll probably be effective because he's good at that sort of um, branding other people. The, the other strategy will be uh, DeSantis ignoring Trump, not getting in a, a, a street fight. So I think DeSantis has learned, you know, when, when you get in the street with Donald Trump, you normally come out bruised and, and battered, and he's little, you know, uh, in, in a little better shape than you are. So I look for the DeSantis camp to continue to advise Ron DeSantis, hey, you know, Trump's your opponent, but let's not anger his base. Because once again, the, the concern of, of DeSantis is that the Trump voter will not come back and vote for him over a Joe Biden or, or the other the other Democrat. 
but but to me, the underlying and the most important circumstance is voter turnout. And Drew talked a little bit yesterday about reorg, and I know that Florence and Darlington have reorg, and I, pa- I applaud, and I mean this sincerely, as somebody's run for office before, the people that get up on Saturday morning and then kind of go and, and understand, okay, you're managing these precincts and you're doing these and what we got to get all these other people registered and make sure they show. I mean, that, that is the, um, that is the offensive line of, of American politics. I mean, all guts, That's no the glory. Grassroots, I mean, right? it's all guts, no glory. I mean, there, there's no glory in what those people do, but, but have we, tra- have we trailed and failed to understand how sophisticated the left is in this private financing of campaigns? I mean, I went back and read an expose by Real Clear Politics. There's about seven 501c3s with about $1.2 or $3 tri- billion. Wow, I'm glad he's reading. $1.2 or $3 billion sitting on go. And it's um, some of these charitable foundations that have given money. Um, you know how they sponsor NPR? You know, the liberal, uh, the liberal philanthropist wants NPR to stay on the air. So I mean, they've got money, then they know what to do with it. So they give a million-dollar grant to NPR to make sure it subsidizes some of the government funding that allows NPR. I mean, nobody listens to NPR. I mean, it couldn't survive in a market-based reality, but it's government subsidized. And then some of these 501c3, some of these liberal, you know, but but wealthy people have every right to do that. I mean, if, they, if you're liberal and wealthy and want to give money to NPR, you certainly should be entitled to do that. I wish you wouldn't, but you should be entitled to do that. Um, but there's $1.3 billion dollars and the, the Republicans have no, no organization in place. And the private financing of campaigns, what the Republicans have done, Reb, is try to make illegal the private financing or funding of campaigns in 24 states. Drew's right. I read last night. It is 24 states where they successfully passed legislation, but it's states like South Carolina. Now, now Georgia has done some pretty good things in relation, but Pennsylvania's done nothing. Wisconsin's done nothing. Michigan's done nothing, Arizona's done nothing, and Nevada's done nothing. So if you deploy, I mean, imagine if, imagine Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, Arizona, and Nevada. Uh, imagine those five states, you're splitting up about a billion dollars to privately finance some of the voting turnout efforts. I mean, there's no way Reorg can win that. I mean, there's just no way. Money's the answer. Now, what's the question? So you've got somebody motivated by patriotism. And and the zeal and zest of American politics. I want Dave Baker to be congressman. I want Ken R to be you know president. I want all these great and and and, and you know people that I so share common views and values with. I want them to get in office, and I'm willing to get up on a Saturday morning and try to register you know a hundred other voters that feel like I feel and see the world as I see the world. And in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh in particular, they are handing out money. I mean, they're, they're basically saying, um, hey, for every unsolicited mail-in ballot you collect, here's 100 bucks or 50 bucks. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, what is $100 million in Philadelphia to win the presidency and be in control of every executive branch or every executive administrative office in, in, a, you know, in a presidential administration? It's minuscule. I mean, it really and truly is. And I did want to ask Drew, you know, do the Republicans have a plan to implement a private financing of campaigns because I know they don't. And I just think we've got to. We, and Trump has said this. I mean, Trump has basically said we've got to beat them at their own game. 
We've got a ballot harvest with, with the Democrats. We've got to get these unsolicited mail-in ballots with the Democrats. We've got to, you know, we got to steal it fair and square. But because in those 26 states where it's, it's still legal, I mean, there, there are variations of what legal means and what it doesn't mean. But in 26 states in America, there is the right to privately finance some of the um, so, some of the voter turnout efforts, saying, and that's concerning and alarming. And when we talk about what Republican has the best chance to win in November, I don't know if any Republican has much of a chance to win in November if we've got the private financing of campaigns. But I really and truly don't. Yeah, because you're not only running against your opponent, you're running against a system that is somewhat against you. You're running against money. I mean, once again, money's the answer. What's the question? So, So you've got good, decent people in Florence and Darlington tomorrow morning getting up early in, in one of these reorg meetings, dedicating some time, some energy, some effort to making sure as many Republicans vote as possible. They identify these Republicans. They train these Republicans. I mean, it's the grassroots. It's the old school grassroots of politics. It just seems like we're always chasing the Democrats on, on the innovative ways to win to win elections. And I think, the, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, what he did was brilliant. I mean, I wish he hadn't done it. And I don't think it's the way elections were intended to be conducted, but it happened. And we we went back and read the minutes of the Fulton County Election Commission when they accepted grants. And um, and that's when the aha moment, okay? Aha, I see now the statistical anomalies in Fulton County. I see the statistical anomalies in Ravine or Ravine County, uh, Wisconsin, in uh, in Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh, in, uh, in uh, what, what is it? What's the county in Arizona? Uh, the one Mar- we have, Mar- yeah, Mar- Maricopa, the one we have so much trouble um, with in Nevada. So, so I mean, the the Democrats, and, and this is why I think they believe they can run Biden. I mean, I, you know, you're running an 80, what, how 82-year-old man at the time? I mean, imagine that, guys. Imagine running an 82-year-old man. I'm not talking about, I mean, it's bad enough that the guy's 80 and president. He's going to be 82 and run it again. But the reason the Democrats have confidence is not the quality of candidate. It's not the message. They believe they built this machine, that this underground machine that will outperform anything the Republicans can do. I, I just got to believe there, there, there's kind of work for them. Well, didn't I mean, it? Of course it did. I mean, how do you win the presidency and see what a lot of people say he was in the basement for the last campaign and yeah. he won. Well, I mean, did nothing, but, but had turnout machines funded by Mark Zuckerberg at about a half billion dollars, $450 million. Well, this year or this election cycle, They've got nearly three times that much. I mean, it's at least twice that much. It's north of a billion dollars. And I, I could read some of the names of the foundations, um, but it's a, it's an enormous amount of money that they will um, deploy in some of these swing states. And I just, I don't know what the Republicans are going to do other than find some wealthy conservative, go to Peter Thiel and, and tell Peter Thiel, hey, you got your money out of Silicon Valley Bank at the last minute. How about giving us some of that money? And, and the Republicans need about $500 million to basically privately finance, you know, voter turnout. I mean, that's where we are in 26 states. And the only, I mean, from my perspective, the only competitive state that, that we figured out a way to change the rules and laws is Georgia. Now, we'll see how that works out at the end. But, but, but imagine, I mean, take, take Ron DeSantis as a political athlete because the best candidate normally wins. But that's one of the, 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 you can break American politics down a hundred ways to Sunday, but at the end of the day, 
prior to 2020, the best candidate normally wins. Not always, not every single time, but but 80, 85% of the time, if Dave's a better candidate than Ken, he's going to convince more voters uh, that, than I to win. I mean, that's just the reality. And I'm talking about in competitive races. In national races, I mean, you know, the American presidency is about the electoral college. That's different in, I don't give a damn how good a candidate you are. If you're running in a, a plus 20 Democrat district, you aren't winning. I mean, I don't care how good a candidate you are. If you're a Republican running in a plus 20, I mean, you'd see where I'm headed. I mean, there's, there's certain fights just not worth pursuing. Um, we, we've seen that happen. I'll give an example. Uh, a Republican it and beaten Jim Clyburn. I mean, if, if we dug Ronald Reagan up in his prime and said, go get him, Ronnie, he ain't beating Jim Clyburn to that district. He's just not. I'm just too weighted toward the Democrat. Um, Barack Obama is not going to beat Lindsey Graham for a Senate seat in South. Well, huh? but Barack Obama is not going to beat Tim Scott for, for, for a Senate seat in, uh, in South Carolina. Uh, you see where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. But the American presidency, how would, I mean, if you looked at all things equal and you take Ron DeSantis, a 40-some-odd-year-old governor, I mean, a, a, a guy who's pretty articulate. He's not the greatest speaker, but but he's real business-like. He's boardman. I mean, he's like a, a – I, I use the word boardroomy. He's a bit boardroomy, but he's matter-of-fact. He's competent. He's disciplined. I mean, he looks the part. He went to Yale. He's a, was a JAG officer. I mean, he's kind of a decorated mil- – uh, pretty wife, young family. I mean, everything about him is a little bit uh, made for, you know, politics. And then you've got Joe Biden who looks like he's walking on a permanent sheet of ice with this weird kind of a gaze in his eyes. But Biden knows something that a lot of you don't know. Joe Biden knows that there's about $1.2 billion that is going to aid and assist him beating the young, energetic, photogenic, former baseball player at Yale. I mean, think about that. I mean, think about Joe Biden, 82 years old, standing there beside Ron DeSantis. All things equal, ain't no way Biden wins that. I mean, in the world of the best candidate wins, there's no way in Hades that, that, that Joe Biden beats Ron DeSantis. But you've got $1.2 billion ready to be unleashed at a, you know, just whenever they give the word. And, um, and I would imagine, <laughs> I got to believe there's already plans in action. I mean, you got to believe as the Republicans are reorging in the traditional fashion in Darlington. And once again, I'm not insulting that. I'm not demeaning. I'm not disparaging any of that. It's really and truly the way American politics should be conducted at the grassroots level. But the private financing of campaigns has changed that enormously. How likely are you to get up on Saturday morning, three consecutive Saturday mornings, to canvas a neighborhood if you're not getting paid? How likely are you to get up and canvas a neighborhood if you are? What if somebody's giving you 25 bucks for every unsolicited mail-in ballot you turn in? It doesn't matter if they're legitimate or not. I mean, they turn it, you turn them in, they get counted, you get your money. I've heard it often said money is the mother's milk of American politics, but, but historically it has been in advertising and, you know, branding and paying infrastructure, paying for a political infrastructure to help you get elected. Now it's, it's a little bit different. It's all about turnout. And the Democrats just have a, an enormous advantage in, uh, in turnout, and it's not, it's not in the old-fashioned way. It's in this newfangled private financing of um of campaigns russell fry will be with us at 7 30 after that we've got the delegation at 8 at 905 this morning um rev nailed it um vivek ramaswamy who is a scheduled to an, appear a, yeah scheduled to appear at 905 he is an announced republican presidential candidate love to get his take on um 
He's one of these, um, I think it was in the biotech business, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me on this, but I think he's invested eight figures of his own money in this campaign. Uh, for you folks in Pamplico, that would be north of $10 million. Um, That's a lot of money in anybody's backyard, anybody's um, neighborhood. But he has had, as far as I'm concerned, the most to say about the big issues of any of the second-tier candidates. I mean, he's an announced candidate. Haley's an announced candidate. Trump's an announced candidate. I would imagine by the end of, uh, before the beginning of April, Ron DeSantis will probably more likely than not be an announced candidate. Mike Pence, I I guess, is going to announce. What else will he do? I mean, he's a former VP. Somebody's got to run for the old guard, right? I mean, somebody's got to I run guess. on behalf of the, um, the the neocons of days gone by. Pence gave such a um, a flat remark about um, about neoconservatism and Putin sympathizers and whatnot. But um, but but I want to get into the story here. It's kind of interesting. It's state of Minnesota. I know we got to take a break here in a second to make sure we get Russell lined up at seven thirty. Um, and I want to hear what Russell has to say about Congress in relation to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. I don't think Russell's on uh, the finance or banking committees. They, they would probably have a, uh, a more up-close-and-personal um, look at that. But but I want to get Russell to, to, to really tell us what – I mean, he's, he's new. He's just getting there. Um, what sorts of priorities does he perceive the party having as we head into a presidential election? Because the one thing Congress wants is a president that will go along with their bills. And right now, you don't have that. So, so despite the Republican majority in the House of Representatives, you got a Democrat president who more likely than not will veto any legislation. And plus, it's not going to make its way um, through the Senate. 843 661-0937. A little peanut butter during the last break. <laughs> we'll take, a little struggle we'll take, with that. And a little sugar. Uh, 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Be back in just a few moments. You know, the, the Pennsylvania law to me is very interesting. I mean, the Georgia law is cut and dry. The Pennsylvania law, I'll read it verbatim. The cost and expense to state and local governments relating to the registration of voters and the preparation, administration, and conduct of elections in this commonwealth shall be funded only upon lawful appropriation of the federal, state, and local governments. State and local governments, including their public officers, public officials, employees, and agents, acting in their official capacity, may not solicit, apply for, enter into a contract for, or receive or expend gifts, donations, grants, funding of individual, blah, 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 um, does not prohibit the collection of fees authorized by law, the donation or use of a location for voting purposes, the donation or use of services provided without remuneration. Uh, remun- uh, that, that, is, is this language for a... Uh- like well, I mean, lawyer it, language or remuneration of the donation to use of goods at a nominal value. It's confusing. I mean, it's a word salad. Yeah. When you read the Georgia, and I guess this is why, I mean, you remember in Pennsylvania, well, not in Pennsylvania. Where do we have the trial? Uh, it was not in Pennsylvania. We had a trial in Wisconsin, I think, uh, a challenge in Wisconsin. Oh, Arizona. Arizona. That, Arizona is the one I'm thinking about. But but I, rem- I remember reading the legislation and – I mean, does not prohibit the collection of fees authorized by law, the donation or use of a location for voting purposes, the donation. See, that concerns me. The word donation. I mean, why is the word donation in voting legislation? I mean, I get, I mean, it, the first paragraph is the cost and expense to state and local governments relating 
to the registration of voters in preparation, administration, and conduct of elections in this commonwealth shall be funded only upon lawful appropriation by the federal, state, and local governments. But, but then it goes on. There's some footnotes here. It does not prohibit the collection of fees authorized by law, the donation or use of a location for voting purposes, the donation or use of services provided um, without the donation or use of goods that have a nominal value of less than $100. I mean, it's, it's, hmm, it's a lot of words. somebody could fund the donation, couldn't they? Well, I mean, it seems to me that's kind of the word, the donation yeah. and, and then the, um, the voting purposes. I mean, that's vague and open-ended. And, and the point I'm trying to make, guys, and a lot of you agree with me, we just don't know what to do. I mean, we're going to have a reorg in Florence County tomorrow, and there are just serious and caring people who will get up early tomorrow morning and not rake leaves and not go to a ball game and not get ready for March Madness, but rather invest in democracy. I mean, they will do their dead-level best to contribute to the, the, the best system of electing officials in the history of mankind. But you've also got something on the other side working against you. I mean, how can hard work whip $1.3 billion? I don't think it can. And when you look at some of these states that are very vague and ambiguous in, in what you can and cannot do, I mean, I think Georgia really made it clear. And it'll be interesting to watch Georgia play itself out. I'll read you. Well, I can't do that. I'm in the wrong category here. Let's get to Georgia real quick. I know Russell's going to call here in just a second, but um, bear with me one minute. Let's get to Georgia. That'd be A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right, Rev? I think so. Um, okay, Last you ready? Time I checked. <laughs> you ready? Um, Georgia, no superintendent or board of registrars shall take or accept any funding, grants, or gifts from any source other than the governing authority of the county, the state of Georgia, or the federal government. Also requires the state election board to study and report to the General Assembly a proposed method for accepting donations, okay, intended to facilitate the administration of elections and a method for an equitable distribution of such donations statewide about October 20, excuse me, October 1, um, 2021. That's the, um, I mean, that is in the legislation in the state of Georgia. Georgia did a good bit to try and discourage some of the, um, some of the antics that happened in, um, in 2020 and, and in 2022, but, but give the Democrats credit. I mean, they're putting their mouth over their money, uh, where their mouth is. They've got, um, They've got about $1.2 billion um, sitting on go, ready to invest, or deploy would be a better uh, word, in, um, in what we call private funding of, of campaigns. South Carolina, they're not going to spend much money here. I mean, they, they may spend a little money in a district. I think we've outlawed that anyway. But Pennsylvania is very vague and ambiguous. Ohio, excuse me, um, Wisconsin leaves a lot of ambiguity to the discussion. Arizona and Nevada or kind of similar in, in, um, in the way their language in their legislation is. So whether it's Trump, whether it's DeSantis, whether it's Nikki Haley, whether it's Vivek Ramaswamy, who will be with us at 9.05 this morning, the Republicans have to figure out a way to make up for what the Democrats are doing on the private funding or private financing of campaigns. The reorg has historically been the way we do it, Reb that the county, the grassroots, I mean, you get people out and you, you register those people to vote and you convince them it's worth them going to the poll at a primary and then a general. But I'm telling you, money talks. And the Democrats have a lot of money to invest in some of these states that still allow. I mean, once again, it's ambiguous. But it seems to me they still allow the private financing or private funding 
of campaign. Zuckerberg had $450 million. The Democrats have north of a billion dollars sitting on go, ready to once again invest or deploy. Um, a guy that will have to worry, he'll worry about that a little bit, but not as much as if you're in a, uh, a presidential race or one of these swing districts in a purple state. Congressman Russell Fry is with us. Congressman, good morning. How are you? I'm very well, my friend. It's good to be back home this week in, in, instead of Washington and uh, be, with, be with real people. Russell, I'm not for federalizing elections, but I am for getting the private funding of, of elections. I, I, how do we do that? I mean, I, you, you don't deal with that as much here in South Carolina, but if you were a congressman from Pennsylvania in a swing district or Nevada or Arizona, you would deal with that. I mean, once again, I'm not for you know federalizing the elections, but but is it true that we're disadvantaged by, by historically the way we've concentrated on vo- voter turnout and what the what the Democrats are now doing? I think yes and no. I mean, I think I think Republicans you know need to get smart uh, in in a lot of ways uh, on on conducting elections on on going about uh, electing Republicans, if you will. You know, I think South Carolina, as an example, uh, took a stab uh, last year, the year before at the Zuckerbucks and really making sure that that couldn't happen, that uh, state election commissions or even county election commissions couldn't be taking funds uh, in South Carolina from Facebook or Meta or whatever uh, to promote. Because this is what was happening, obviously, as your listeners know, they were flooding certain blue towns and cities uh, to drive up turnout. You know, if you were red, I mean, I don't think there was probably a dime spent in Horry County uh, from Mark Zuckerberg, but Charleston, uh, for sure, there there was, uh, and you know I think that that when you have private interests that are kind of using uh, or giving money uh, under the auspices of of helping um, you know a, a county election commission, but lo and behold, ninety percent of them voted for Joe Biden. You know I think you kind of see the writing on the wall on where this is going, and I think that's dangerous. I mean, elections are kind of a core function of government; and they should be left. Uh, you know, the conduct of them should be left to the state. You talked a lot about your, your work in Washington. I know you got, um, I think, four committee hearings, if I'm not mistaken, that we're going to talk about. Let's do that, and then I want to get to the issue that we've all paid close attention to, and that is our banking system and what you perceive Congress's role to be uh, in regards to the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the soundness or not of our banking system. But let's go to the four committee hearings that you were involved in last week. Kind of walk us through, I mean, thumbnail, cliff note, but, but as, as, as you learn more and more about how Washington works, um, what were the four committee meetings about? What contributions uh, do you like to think you made? Yeah, I mean, there was, uh, you know, there was one on China, China and intellectual property. I mean, that's a big one. There was, we can touch on that. You know, there was one on uh, inflation and some of the inflationary pressures that happened because of uh, the American Rescue Plan, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, there was one on OPM, which is the Office of Personnel Management, um, and the fact that you know they have not returned to work. Um, uh, Washington bureaucrats have not returned to work from COVID. That a lot of them are still, you know, working from home or working remotely, and some of the problems uh, of that. So that was kind of the thrust, I think. Um, last week when we were in Washington were some of those types of hearings. And, and I'll tell you, um, you know, at least as it concerns with China and intellectual property, you know, I, I look, I practice law, but I never really did much as far as intellectual property. But uh, to hear uh, the experts talk about it, to see what is going on. I mean, we, we talk about a geopolitical foe 
in, in this, from a military sense, from an economic sense. Uh, but heck, this is big, and this is big too, when, when not only are they clogging up uh, intellectual property lanes uh, and trying to plow patents and trademarks for really everything, uh, but they really steal our, and we've heard this for a long time, they steal our technology. They find ways to leverage company influence uh, so that, you know, if, if you make widget X and you want this Chinese company to produce widget X or to have a hand in it, that any improvements to widget X thereafter are now owned by that Chinese company controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. It's just, it's a big threat. And, and they're, not, they're not operating on a level playing field. And we've had administrations really up until Donald Trump that have recognized it, have seen it, have called it out, met with the president of China or whomever, but have failed to actually back it up with enforcement until Donald Trump. And of course, uh, since he's left office, uh, we've seen this president really erode uh, and roll back some of those policies that protect American uh, ingenuity and American companies. Um, but Ken, gosh, you also had you know the inflationary pressures as it related to, to ARPA, and there was an economist there that was pretty clear. I called this when I saw it. We didn't need uh, these things at the time. We didn't need to pass them at the time. Uh, the unemployment rate was headed in the right direction. Interest rates were in a good spot. Americans were getting back to work from COVID. We didn't need to do another supplemental package so quickly on the heels and so large on the heels of what the Congress had already done uh, because there were so many millions and hundreds of billions of dollars of unspent COVID funds still winding their way through. So, you know, Democrats want to, you know, have a narrative that, you know, they needed to do all these things and that the Inflation Reduction Act actually uh, reduced the inflation, uh, but it didn't. We had an energy uh, subcommittee that, that touched on uh, the Biden administration's policies as it pertains to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and the fact that on one hand they've eroded uh, so many uh, sensible policies that made America independent, energy independent, um, and then turn around and when gas prices spike, raid the SPRO, which is the first time in its history that it's been raided really for a political purpose right before an election. And, you know, Ken, inexplicably, right before we get to, uh, you know, there's a Democrat witness there that, that talks, and, and he made the comment, you can't drill your way out of this, you know. Um, but at the same time, the, the Biden administration was going in August or September to Saudi Arabia to beg them to drill more. So, um, you know, the, the Democrats up there seem to be kind of operating in a totally different lane and world than, than the rest of America live in. Um, but really, people still continue to suffer from those from those policies of this administration um, because they refuse to recognize the importance of energy, domestic energy being produced here. Russell, as you sit in these committees and we have these hearings, is it your party, is it the caucus's desire to create legislation to combat some of the issues? I mean, the committee, the committee members are there to understand and learn and gain more knowledge and information. What do you do with that? I mean, do you, do you go to your caucus, your committee, your subcommittee, and begin adopting or drafting legislation? I, I think so. For instance, you know, we went um, last week, uh, a couple weeks ago, we went to the border. Not last week, but a couple weeks ago, we went to the border. We've had hearings uh, in the Judiciary Committee um, about the border. Uh, and some of the pitfalls there. When we return, um, we're going to have what they call a markup, um, which is where you 
examine a piece of legislation, you debate it, and you pass it through the committee structure. Uh, so some of these things are moving. It's so important to have these hearings, though, and I'll tell you why. Is one, uh, they highlight a problem. You know, I'm not an expert in intellectual property, but I serve on that subcommittee. Um, I'm not an expert in uh, foreign relations, um, but there are parts of oversight that that touches or what have you. So these hearings are important not only for the members uh, and staff, but for the American people, too. I mean, the American people can uh, tee up on this. Obviously, you've seen, I think we've seen, a pretty dramatic narrative change in the country uh, because of these hearings about the border. Uh, and But then you, you back that up. Uh, so you lay the foundation with the hearings. You get the experts to talk in the way that experts do. And then you back it up with how to fix it, uh, which is a legislative fix here. Good deal. Last thing I want to touch on with you, you've made a priority tour in the district. Um, it is a Myrtle Beach-centric district, an Horry County-centric district. We all understand that's where the population base, the majority of voters live there. But it's a big district. It's different. It's diverse. It's complicated. You've tried to make it a priority to understand not just Horry County where you're from, but all the other areas of the district. Is there another district tour in store? Uh, there, there's always a district tour. So we, every every time we're home, you know, what I like to do is I go into a county and I spend all day there. And we started, so this week we were in uh, Marlborough County and Chesterfield County, and we started at 7 in the morning, and I didn't get back to the hotel up there in Chiraw until 9, 9.30 at night. I mean, we went all day, and, we you know, we would do, you know, a tour of a big manufacturing facility, talking, uh, meeting with local business owners, uh, you know, a summit, if you will, of mayors within the county. So those types of things where we would kind of fully immerse ourselves into the fabric of that of that county. Uh, so I love it, first of all, because I'm not I'm home uh, and I'm not dealing with Washington. I love being around, as I said earlier, real people. So um, we're going to keep doing it. I think it's I think it's important to have that ear to the ground to to understand not only the big macro things that are going on in every county in the district, you know, workforce shortages and um, inflation and things like that, but to really drill down on some of the unique countywide challenges that each county in the district, including Ori, have, uh, and how we can be, how we can better represent our district by fighting for those local interests. Very well explained, Russell. Thank you for your time. We will talk what. Next Friday is just a normal Friday. It's the Friday after that. That is a Friday, F-R-Y-D-A-Y. Thank you, Russell. Appreciate it, my man. We'll be back in a, in a Friday. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> Thank uh, you so much. Yes, sir. Congressman Russell Fry joins us every other week, um, normally when he's home, not in, in session. Kind of interesting, you know, being around real people. The implication is Washington doesn't have a lot of real people. Everybody I know that, that got elected to Congress went there and the first thing they became aware of is how different that place is. I mean, it's completely and totally different. And when you think about a nation's capital, I mean, when a nation's capital feels foreign to the nation, you know you got a problem. I mean, in all honesty. That's uh, why I've always liked the idea that has been floated around for years that you would move the federal agencies to different parts I've, of the country. I've always said, put wheels on Washington. Make the lobbyists chase it around America. <laughs> Make the special interest wonder where love where it goes next. It's so, I mean, it's so not a part of America. I mean, it is a part of America, and some of the most historic buildings in our nation are there, commemorating and honoring and 
and, and having been dedicated to some of the most important figures in American history. And um, when I see the Jefferson Memorial, I mean, I get a little bit emotional. And the first thing I think is he wouldn't like this. I mean, he just would not like all this, um, you know, this, um, ah, the, the, the entourages, the, um, the, the, the pompousness, the self-importance, the self-absorption. I, I just can't for the life of me believe Jefferson intended for our elected officials to believe that they were rock stars, but rather public servants. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We had Russell Fry with us at 730. We've got a full um, staff of delegation. Not a staff. we got a full studio full of our delegation members. And at 9.05, I'm pretty jacked about this, Rev. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? I mean, you sent me a text yesterday at about 4 o'clock. That's right. So I got a emailed press release yesterday uh, uh, from Vivek Ramaswamy's campaign, and he has some campaign appearances in South Carolina over the weekend, in Charleston, and I think one in Manning on Sunday morning. So I reached out. What the hell's he doing in Manning? Hey, campaigning, meeting people. When I get Charleston. Right. right. I mean, if you're coming to South Carolina running for president, Manning just sitting one of the stops. Go everywhere. That, I mean, I don't want to insult Manning. I mean, Manning's a cool place. Yeah. I just don't know how many. Is that worth um, Vivek Ramaswamy's time? Every voter counts. Every right? voter counts. Yep. You're right. But go where the most voters are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you probably so, went to Manning when you were campaigning. I probably did. Yeah. But I wasn't running for president. So I reached out to the contact and, uh, and you know, told her who we are and that we'd like to interview. And she said, okay, what time? So we're set up for 9.05, scheduled to appear on the show this morning. And I'm telling you, the guy has made the biggest splash of all the second-tier candidates. Well, I say all. He's the only second-tier candidate. So, obviously, he's made a bigger splash than Nikki. I mean, to me, he's had more substance than Nikki has. Everybody's waiting on DeSantis and Pence to get in, and that's when the game kind of um, kind of heats up. Um, Jay Jordan, Philip Lowe, Mike Rickenbaugh are here um, this morning. Um, let, let's let's do this real quick, and then we'll get – I want to get into a little bit of Columbia business, and then we're going to get off um, – we'll talk about something other than politics. Um, I don't want to say – I'm not asking you, Jay, who you're for, but what? how do you see the Republican presidential field shaping up? Too early to tell. Um, oh, that's such a watered <laughs> down well, you came answer. to me first. So that's, <laughs> what you, no, I, I think, you know, look, I was talking to some colleagues during uh, this past week. Uh, if we if we get uh, more than four to five candidates, I think it's, it's Donald Trump's for the taking. Uh, he's got a, a base uh, of, of 35% uh, from the numbers I've seen and heard over the last little bit that are going to, to stick with him no matter what. Um, if the, the field stay, stays smaller than that, then I think it becomes a true competition. Um, the, the interesting part to me is, and this is so far over my head as a national politics type situation, um, what, why DeSantis is, is sort of holding back as long as he is. You know, if he truly is going to run, what is the political calculus, so to speak, that we talk about that is convincing him that holding uh, holding back this long is the right strategy? Philip, Trump didn't get the support in the state house this year that he did four years ago. Is that fair? Yeah, I think everybody's considering me. I think well, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I am. <laughs> you are. I got three votes. Here. No, That's, sir. No, sir. My wife said she wouldn't vote for me. <laughs> You know, I, I don't know. I but, think, but I mean, he did cut the block at the state house and, and didn't get as many people to sign up in support as he did uh, when he was the lone. Well, he was the president then. Well, he didn't win last time. Correct. I mean, that's all really amounts to. We're all questioning. Can he 
can he pull it off this time? And it's all about five states. And like you said, the money's lining up behind those states. And I don't know that the rest of it is going to be that much of a, of a you know, of a surprise anywhere. Uh, you get the most votes you've ever gotten and more than any other president. And you don't win. How do you win? Well, you go in and, and you've got to figure out how to harvest votes. That's all it amounts to. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm not overly concerned that he's not in i got a poll last week on my telephone you know mm-hmm. and you know as you go through the poll then you realize at the end who they're talking about who they're polling for and it was DeSantis poll i, I got a DeSantis push poll as well mike what, what do you what do you make of the race so far yeah well and to jay your point what i heard on the, the i can't even remember who it was on the radio recently he's waiting is he wants to finish up their legislative cycle and have some really big wins and his campaign announcement is going to be, if I could do this in Florida, look what I could do for the nation. So if there's any truth to that, as to why he's waiting. He wants to get through the, I think it's May, mm-hmm. is when their end of their legislative cycle is over there, which maybe it's a good idea, maybe it's not. But, but he is the wild card. I mean, we all agree to that. I mean, if, if DeSantis doesn't get in, Trump's unbeatable. I mean, I don't care what the National Review says. I don't care what the Wall Street Journal says. I don't care what the New York Times says. If DeSantis doesn't get in, there is nobody with any chance at all to beat Donald Trump. Do we agree with that? I mean, you guys are looking at me. Jake, you don't buy that. No, I do. I'm just thinking back, you know, I've heard rumors about Tim Scott. I think Tim's done a great job here in South Carolina and would be a a very formidable, uh, he would have a very formidable message. Uh, Having said that, when you just look at the the data and the historical, you know, aspect of Trump uh, for who he is, I think you're probably right. I think he is a runaway train without someone like DeSantis getting in the run. Not not without someone like DeSantis, without DeSantis getting in. Because I don't think there are any, I mean, there's nobody like Trump. And there aren't many like DeSantis, is I think the where the uh, where the field lines now. Um, let, you guys, I mean, I'll start with you, Philip, if you don't mind. Budget week? Did we get a budget done in the we, house? We did, and, and it was quicker than we thought. Uh, it, we had a little dust up here and there, but we got through it, and and you know, so it was a good budget. We got a, a lot of money. You know, went to the the Scout dealership, or did not the actual manufacturer of Scout Motors. So. Um, that was a $1.3 billion investment from the state of South Carolina. And that took away some of the things that we could do extra in the budget. Well, let's all remember, you know, we balance a budget here. That's how we live. And, and we spent the money that was available to us based on the edge, the estimates that come from the BEA. So I was pleased with it. Hey, the law enforcement got another 15% raise. That was 17% last year, 15% this year. So I'll tell you, we had a victory there, and they're starting to plug some holes in the in the force there. A, a core function of government. Jay, you're in the house. I'll get the mic in a second, but you, I mean, you you touched the budget. Just Philip worked through it, all the ways and means. I mean, what's your feeling about the process? Once ways and means sends the budget to the floor, then it becomes you know fair game for all 124 members to wear to weigh in on, and that's what we did for three days uh, this past week. I was thinking on the way over here. You know, people talk about. I think all of us probably said when we ran for office, government needs to function more like a business. And how does that, what does that look like in South Carolina? It looks like what Philip just described. We balance the budget. We, uh, we commit to um, what we believe are reasonable expenditures for the state of South Carolina. Um, Philip's right. We did have the major economic um, incentive package that we approved. Senate did as well. And now it, um, it moves forward. Um, the, the other important thing that I think we need to remember is last year we, we started the process of committing to a tax cut for South Carolinians. And because of that, we have to put aside, I think it was $900 million a year every year in the budget moving forward to, to comply 
with with that commitment of that tax cut moving forward, and we put that money aside and did it again. Mike, what do you make of the budget the House passed? Well, because it becomes your baby now. It, uh, we were focused really this week on getting our own budget requests in. So our deadline was yesterday at five o'clock, and uh, I really appreciate Philip. He and I worked closely together on it to make sure we were supporting each other's requests. And and as a freshman senator, I really focused my request where my constituents said their biggest concerns were, with, which was law enforcement, public safety, uh, and not just in the largest department. So we've got requests in for Florence City Police Department and Florence County Sheriff's Office to support them with additional equipment that they need to keep us safe. But we didn't want to forget the smaller rural municipalities. So we also have law enforcement requests, budget requests in for Johnsonville, Pamplico, Scranton, Coward, Atlanta, and Timmonsville, because uh, they often feel like they're forgotten. Small departments, three, four, five, six, seven people, but they got a lot of territory to cover, relatively to speaking to the, the number of officers they have, and they need the same equipment that the Florence County Sheriff's Office has and Florence City Police. Well, we got a call? Let's we, go there. We do. It's Daphne in Dillon. Hi, you're on with the delegation. Good morning, guys. I'll try to make it real quick. I heard something on the uh, farmer's report uh, on 95.3 of the morning that's disturbing and I want to know if you know anything about it. The representative who represents the South Carolina Farm Bureau, I guess, said that they were trying to enact cap and trade on the farmers in this area and that they would be doing that even though that didn't pass through the federal government. It was you know, voted down, they're trying to do it through organizations. The other thing, uh, on the lithium battery uh, site in Florence, how much research was done and where will those minerals come from? Where will they be shipped from? And is there any residue from manufacturing those particular batteries? Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. I know nothing about the cap and trade issue. I'll level with you. If you guys know anything about it, I know absolutely nothing about that. I do know a little bit about the economic development um, situation here in Florence, but Philip, I'll let you, you and Jay have kind of, and Mike have kind of led that charge, making that as a priority. Um, how much due diligence is done when one of those announcements come about? The, the diligence is done behind the scenes, but before it really lands in the lap, you know, the morning news to report it. So, um, at that point, with, with any of this, it's got to be held confidential because there's many places really vying for that same business to come to theirs. So when it finally gets to where, okay, we got a deal done, it seems like all of a sudden, and it is all of a sudden to most of the world, but folks are working on it behind with the Department of Commerce. It ain't and, all of a sudden. I could vouch for that's that. That's right. I mean, it, it's it takes, a lot of work done. months. Well, months I mean, I'll give work. an example, Jay, and I'll let you and Mike jump in. Um the topography has to, I mean, it, there are certain requirements on the topography and the soil about seismic conditions. In other words, if we build a building here that houses some sort of um, contaminant and we have a 6.9 uh, earthquake, is the soil suitable to build? I mean, there's so much done behind the scenes, and a lot of this is done prior to certification of site. Um, when you build a, an industry like that on a certified site, that there's a lot of work. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars that has already been spent to make sure the site is appropriate and suitable and environmentalists get involved in this. I'll let you kind of um, 
uh, opine on that. No, you're exactly right. Yeah, I can give you a, a, a slightly more recent example. This scout uh, package that we just improved, there were significant dollars within there to make that um, the, the land that they're going to use site ready. As you might imagine, there's a tremendous amount of heavy equipment that will be used in manufacturing those vehicles, and therefore the soil had to be reinforced essentially, uh, and that was that is not a, a cheap thing. And so we were uh, some of those dollars were going to make the soil ready. Similarly, take, take, bring it back home to this new project here in Florence. Same type of due diligence. Um, I asked that question early on that we, we do believe this is safe, number one. And, and, of course, I was reassured that there was multiple studies and we're, you know, we're dealing with a sophisticated manufacturer. And not just that, we're, m- much, much due diligence has gone in to make certain that we're not uh, doing anything that would be dangerous to our constituents, our community, um, in, in the short term or the long term. And then, and Mike, I mean, they, they, they've got to be good corporate partners. I mean, that's always a big part of when a business decides to come to South Carolina. You do question whether or not they are going to be, uh, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there are pros and cons. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I got people who say, I don't want all that traffic. You know, I don't want all, the, all that mess. And all. But, I mean, if you're going to grow the economy, you're going to have to make investments like that. No, that's exactly right. And, Daphne, we appreciate the question because it's important that we challenge um, projects like that to make sure they're safe and that they're, they're good for the community long term. You know, when you look at all the aspects that go in environmentally, um, DOTs involved, the soil mitigation, other wetlands there, there's an awful lot of folks looking. Uh, great question, Daphne. What I'd like to think is that with the, with the need and the desire for folks to have for more transparency and accountability and the fact that the Internet creates a microphone for whistleblowers or those that are concerned to speak up, um, i got to trust that there's enough eyes looking at this that the the due diligence has been there, the studies have been there, and it will be safe. We have to trust the experts, but as Philip said, uh, the work goes on behind the scenes, and it was an awful lot of work. And it's pretty extensive. I'm going to start with you, Philip, if you don't mind, and this is something that concerns me. Um, The South Carolina Retirement Plan is invested. We're having issues in the financial world right now that, that, that make a lot of us concerned and uncertain about it. How, how do we monitor? I mean, it's not your job. We have government agencies that do this, but, but I, I want people to understand how do, how do we police monitor, gauge, measure the, the, the success or failure of our South Carolina retirement system? I mean, when I read every, every state in America has issues. I mean, every, every single state in America has issues and, and it's a little bit like social security and Medicare. I mean, we promised a lot to a lot of people. And, and if, if the market doesn't perform at six and a quarter, six and a half percent, we begin to create deficits. But, but, but as somebody who's in the General Assembly, how aware are you? I mean, there's nothing you can do about it because it's not, you know, you don't manage the portfolio. But how aware are you? How concerned are you? How observant are you on our state retirement plan and, and some, of the, um, some of the liabilities we're exposed to? I mean, the cake was kind of baked before even I got there, though. Uh, you know, the pensions and all the stuff that was put in there was already there. And so, you know, we struggle thinking, can we meet these? And I'll I'll tell you, I think we can because of our growth, because of the financial, you know, investments that are made in South Carolina with our taxpayer dollars and with people coming in with large businesses and the growth that we have, I think we're sound. We still need to get out of this program and get into a defined benefits program. I don't, I don't see why we don't just stop at some point and say from this point forward, it's another way. Uh, I think there were. You'd be supportive of that. 
Yeah, but I mean, I think they worry that you know where would you come up with that money to pay for the other? So it's like any any scheme. The people that are are starting to pay now are helping the ones that are retiring. So it, you know, I won't say it's a house of cards here. I think we're uh, we're better in this state than most, but at the same time, there's there's an outlay of capital that's got to go towards every so often we'll throw a couple hundred million in there to shore it up to make sure we're in good shape jay you were nodding your head because i mean if we weren't growing it, it, it could be catastrophic the, the fact that we are growing is the only good news the only silver lining so to speak if you go back uh not that far back i mean we all lived through the the financial catastrophe of 2007-8-9 um the retirement board like a lot of retirement folks pension fund folks struggled. Uh, they made some bad decisions and I don't necessarily completely fault them because they weren't the only ones that made bad decisions. Weren't a lot of good decisions to be made in 08 and 09. <laughs> that, that's fair. Um, but we, we compounded the problem here in South Carolina. So fast forward then, um, cause Phillip's right. That would, some of these issues were born well before we ever, any of us ever got to Columbia. I can remember not that long ago, we had to bail them out to the tune of, uh, 30, 50, $60 million in previous budgets um, to, to keep them on track and solving and, and keep their measurements where they needed to be. So hundred percent agreed. We're, we're, we're where we are. We're surviving. We're, we're as good as we are because of the growth we're seeing in South Carolina, but the model is not, I repeat, it is not a long-term sustainable model. We're going to have to make some tough decisions and we're going to have to evolve into a more uh, practical model in the future. It's similar to social security and Medicare. There's going to have to be some modifications made. Uh, Phillip's barking up the right trees. It's going to be hard to figure out a fair way to, to do that. Mike, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I just want to briefly say, while we want to trust the the, the so quote unquote expert, today this week was the first time I I, I actually saw a little trepidation and fear, um, both within the Senate, even even to talk to some folks outside of the Senate, with uh, the experts doing their job. And I refer to the Comptroller General, uh, been in there twenty years, and I'm not throwing stones one way or the other, but. For you've been in there for two decades, and for one full decade, you've had a billion-dollar error grow to two, to three, to four and a half billion is the 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 total amount of the issue, netting out to three and a half billion. And I'm hearing questions asked of the growth is great, but are the folks that we've either elected to the top positions or that have been appointed to the top positions? really being good stewards of what our state has. And I think we're going to see a lot more scrutiny, Ken, a lot more scrutiny and a lot more eyes looking at it. Hard times will bring hard looks. That's yeah. what I've always been told. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Larry in Orangeburg, you are on with the delegation. Hey, good morning, y'all. Um, I've got a question about watercraft tax. Uh, for county. Um, I don't know if that's something that y'all have oversight over. Um, I'm 69 years old. I got a 22-year-old boat, and I'm getting taxed on boat and motor, uh, and 70% um, of it's going to school operations. And uh, I just don't think it's right, personally. Um, I'm not worried about the money, but uh, I know that uh, through licensing at DNR, they exempt people over 65. I mean, it's a lifetime deal, but uh, 
I didn't know if y'all guys uh, knew anything about that or not. I just wanted to see. It's just been on my mind. Thank, thank you. Thank Paul. you, Larry. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate you calling. And anybody want to answer that? I mean, I don't know the technicalities of DNR exemptions or. Philip's got a bigger boat than anybody here. So he's <laughs> he does. Well, they shouldn't tax boats then. That's for sure. Okay. But yeah, that's a local tax. It's not something we do. Uh, but, but um, yeah, I, I think we're all frustrated with that. And uh, a lot of people go to Delaware where they don't require any. Boats and planes. Yeah. There are more boats and planes domiciled in Delaware than anywhere. And they exempt you from some of the uh, some of the taxes. Let's go to the phone. Melanie in Florence, you're on with the delegation. Hi, good morning. I have a question for the delegation. If any of the three of you are involved or can become involved in this, something to be done about the cruelty towards animals in Florence County. I'm sure you've seen the recent uh, story about the two dogs that were shot. And unfortunately, this is not an isolated incident. What can we do to make animal cruelty more than a slap on the wrist if you get caught? And also, how can we get the Stay Neuter Intervention Prevention Center, known as SNP, reopened in Florence because it served Florence County, surrounding counties, and it really kept the kitten and puppy population down and, and just made it easier to take care of the, the strays in this area. So I will take my answer off the air. Thank, Thank you, ma'am. Anybody want to tackle that? We're getting some of these uh, real constituency issues. See, I've always had a problem with the SNP clinic being a, a government comp competitor with veterinarians. I mean, that, that's just me personally. I mean, as a, um, as a free market uh, defender, it bothers me. When, I mean, I get where, where, you know, where we're taking care of animals. I understand that. I want to take care, good care of animals. I just don't like the government being in the business of competing with veterinarians who do the same sorts of, of services. Philip, you want to jump in yeah, here? I think some folks have taken advantage of that and taken their own dog in and say, hey, I found this dog. You know, can you help me with a snip? And, and and they get it done for, you know, 50 bucks or something because the government's helping on the other side of it. And, you know, the other side is you, you certainly don't want strays walking around. But, I mean, what do you do? Turn the strays loose when you, after you snip them? But I think they're snipping them and then seeing if someone wants to take that dog into a home. And that's it's a good cause. We all love our dogs and our pets. Uh, and, and anything that you do, uh, I guess, that hurts a private business like a vet, and they're going to complain, and, and so you get both sides of this. And, and I hear this, Mike. I mean, it, you want to jump in? Go ahead. Well, to the first first part of your question, which is a great question on the the animal cruelty and, and what can be done, uh, we've got a bill pro, uh, proceeding through the Senate right now, and, and it's a little more focused than just overall animal cruelty. But we had heard from the animal shelter, from the Jane Boswell folks there, that. It's incredibly expensive when they find a, a, an abused animal for them to house that animal, to, to treat it back to health, especially some of the larger animals. There's horses, there's some larger animals, not just cats and dogs. But the bill, what we'll have, that if it proceeds, which I think it will, um, will hold those that did the, the abuse liable for the, all the financial um, restitution to bring the animal back to health. Um, could you have an animal there for 30, 45 days and you have medicine every day, you have a vet coming out or a vet tech coming out, it can add up to thousands and thousands of dollars. And, you know, if you're going to have an animal and if you're going to you know, take that responsibility but then abuse it, it shouldn't be the county's um, responsibility to shoulder that burden of the expense to nurse it back to health. Jake? Um, we have the exact same bill that just came through the House Judiciary, uh, companion bill, so to speak, as Mike was uh, explaining there from the Senate. 
Uh, I anticipate that bill being taken up on the floor uh, in the next few weeks. Wouldn't be surprised if it gets amended with some of these concerns um, that the caller expressed. You know, I've always felt as well. I mean, when I got elected to the county council, Mars Sanderson got elected the same time I did, a retired veterinarian. And Mars always said, if you, if you, you know, if you own an animal, you're obligated to care for the animal. But, but that also means, I mean, I've heard these stories. I mean, we've had people call into the show saying that there's these pit bulls in a neighborhood and they won't keep them chained up and they won't keep them locked up and they, they terrorize the neighborhood. So that kind of, um, I mean, that, that pet ownership is a, is a responsibility. I wish people, um, took a little more seriously. Somebody on the phone, Rip? Yep. Okay. Uh, John in Bennettsville, you're on with the delegation. Yes, sir. My question is for, uh, Senator Rickenbaugh. What is it going to take, sir? What is it going to take for you to primary Lindsey Graham? Mm. <laughs> I think my Rick cut out. <laughs> <laughs> I think the equipment's working fine in there, Mike. <laughs> Just uh, say a billion and get this over with. I, I, I appreciate the call, John. I, and I, I'm not being coy, um, but I really am just focused on, on doing what I said I would uh, do. And, and for the constituents of District 31, I made a commitment to them last year, and I gave him in writing a contract with the PD to say, here's what I'll do for you if you elect me. And these are the points I'll stay focused on. And I'm really working on focusing on that, that piece of paper that I signed and I gave to every constituent to say, I'll do what I say. So I appreciate the vote of confidence, but I'm going to really work hard for district 31. Is this I don't, where I, we start the Rickenbach chant? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't want to call names here, but, but I mean, people that keep up politics know that there was a certain candidate who had a pretty good chance to beat Lindsay. And he ended up in prison. See, Mike, I don't want you to end up in, in, in prison. Yeah, I'm, really, uh, I'm, I'm way too thin to go to prison, Ken. i got to be honest well, with you. Well, I'll just say this. I'll probably get in trouble when I say it, but I'll do it anyway. They, they took a guy that used drugs and, and made him a guy that deals drugs, and he was no longer a threat to um to that Senate seat. So I'll just leave it. Rev's nervous now. I'll just leave it. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I want to go back to something all three of you touched on a second ago and get your take on this. So we have a, uh, a miscalculating, a miscounting, um, of three and a half billion dollars. Mike's talking about the, the revert four and a half billion in total. Um, what happens to somebody when they make that big a mistake? What is the, I mean, you guys are in charge of everything. Reb, if the general assembly of South Carolina didn't want us on the radio, we'd be off the radio. Uh, I, I mean, we would be off everything. the radio. We are a legislative state. So if we are a legislative state, I mean, I saw something over the week or during the week where you guys pinged him pretty good and i'm talking about the comptroller general but what legislative and legal authority do we have jay you're the lawyer the bunch first off if it were true that two-thirds of us could get y'all off the radio you would be nicer to us so let's all <laughs> I'm nice let's to you. clear that clear that air um no I, I think this is an ongoing issue um that is like an onion continues to be peeled back and have more layers when this first came out i i, I believed it would probably go to house oversight for them to review and determine exactly what happened. How did such a uh, a mistake, if it is just that a mistake, happen? Um, the first, you know, order of business when you when you put someone in this job is competency. Second is is and right akin to it is is trust. But the question is, have those things been violated? To, and to what degree? And who's going to be held responsible? I think you'll see today. It would be my guess the speaker is probably going to name an ad hoc committee um, and not go through wait for the oversight committee this is too important too serious and there are too many unanswered questions even now as to what happened when it happened what was held back potentially as far as information from the general assembly and those questions need to be answered and they need to be answered right now to determine 
what happened. And then, then going forward, depending on what exactly is revealed, you know, who knew what, who decided what, who held back what information, then I think you'll see some very serious consequences. Philip, what would be the most serious thing the General Assembly could do? I mean, could you guys vote to remove uh, the Comptroller General from office? Yeah, I think we could. I think the House and the Senate can. together, and if, if Henry went along with it, yep, I think it could happen. Two-thirds. What, 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 where do you stand on this? I'm not asking if you want to remove him from office or not, but certainly, I mean, do you want the, the, the oversight of the General Assembly? I mean, we had an election. I mean, I don't want to be Dan Rather here for a second, but, but th- th- there was something known to be true, hidden from the public. We had an election, and then it was revealed to the public. I mean, that, that's got to concern you a lot. Well, I mean, I, I said at the start, this isn't a big issue because it's not like we're missing sure. $3.5 billion. But the public was okay. misled. But Well, it, it was a snowball effect for 10 years of, of doing the same thing wrong 10 years in a row. But what bothers me is he we find out he knew it two years ago. And this didn't come to light until after his election. And that bothers me. And so I think. You, you keep asking some questions, but uh, I think we're hot on his, his tail right now. Mike? Yeah, I'll give you two words. Bill Clinton, sometimes the cover-up is worse than the act. Bill Clinton had said, you know, here's the thing. Here's what I did. We would have saved our country a lot of time and a lot of expense. What we're seeing right now and what happened this past week is that the Senate um, had a, a committee that was – spent a lot of time going through what happened with the comptroller general and the realization that he not only knew, but he's known for years and that he knew right. Even before his election, he didn't say anything um, we're, we've asked him to resign. He has not. So we have passed unanimously in the Senate, a resolution um, invoking the dereliction of duty clause um, in the constitution uh, to remove him. It'll go to the house and our point is the citizens of South Carolina deserve transparency and accountability and call it what it is. If you've made a mistake, say it, but don't conveniently say it to the public after you have your election in November. That's what disappoints a lot of people. Do we have a call, Rev? Okay, let's go there. Matthew in Branchville, listening to WTQS in Orangeburg this morning. Hi, you're on with the delegation. Uh, yes, sir, Ken. Love your show. And I uh, want to really just say thanks to the delegation for taking time out of their schedule to be here as well and won't hold you but a second but i'm curious to know where the delegation stands on senate bill i think it's 530 533 uh does it deals with tort reform and i'm in the logging and trucking business um down here in orangeburg and you know our insurance premiums are through the roof and primarily because of you know lawyers and 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 taking aim at, at a truck and you see it all over the television and you know i'm just a little concerned that the number of trial lawyers that we have representing us in columbia is going to kill this bill before it ever gets a chance to hit the floor and i just would like to know what they think and we need all the help we can get thank Thanks. you sir appreciate the call appreciate you listening appreciate the kind words we got to take a break got to give these guys kind of a chance to get their thoughts together and i come back and address it senate bill what was it 533. We'll take a break. Back in just a few minutes. Was it Billy Carter or Don Henley who said, kill all the lawyers and kill them tonight? <laughs> I can't remember. I know Billy Carter had something not so kind to say about lawyers. And I know Don Henley in one of the song, one of the Eagles songs. You know what I'm talking about, Rev? Not, not, no. Yeah. Well, I'll try to find yeah. it. Yeah. They, uh, Henley might have been Glenn Fry, one or the other. Okay. I'm um, talking negatively. Mike, did you, you, know, you know anything about the bill, Senate Bill 533? I do. And uh, a lot of respect for 
my attorney friends. And when, sure. they, when you need an attorney, you call an attorney. Um, I co-sponsored a bill. There was 24 senators that co-sponsored a bill. And I learned early on in business. Uh, matter of fact, it was uh, a VW a customer who had come in, um, pretty good size scratch in his vehicle. Uh, we didn't do it. I get him on the phone and he says, uh, Mr. Rickenball, I want you to know this isn't personal, but I'm really needing money. And we got two choices. It's cheap to file in magistrate's court, and it will cost you money to defend it. But I know you got good insurance. In it. If, if we could just split the difference of $1,500. And I realize that there is a component of folks out there who will, who will use legal extortion. And that's what it is, legal extortion. And I called my insurance company and said, well, you got a $1,000 deductible. So you report the claim, your rates are going to go up, and all we're going to pay is 500 of the 1500 So then as a business owner, as an independent person, you're left with, do I spend $1,500 to, to pay off this person? Do I go ahead and report it to my insurance company, which you're only going to pay 1000 of it, and then I got to still pay 500 but my rates are going to go up? Or do I go ahead and say, draw a line into saying and say, no, right is right and wrong is wrong. Let's go to magistrate's court and spend the time and the money or get my own attorney. There's got to be some tort reform where that legalized extortion is no longer there. And the second part of it is that joint and several liability, Ken. Real briefly, if you as, a, a, as an individual is 10% responsible for the damages of an, in a situation, but you got really good insurance, and the person who's 90% responsible has no insurance, currently the courts will say, well, you're both responsible and you both need to pay the person who is deemed the recipient of it. So you who have 10% responsibility with really good insurance and deep pockets, you pay 100% because the other person doesn't have any money and doesn't have insurance. That's not right. That's not America. And, Jay, I don't think anybody would ever accuse you of being one of them lawyers. You know what I mean? One of those – and I'm talking about – I don't want to call names here, but I'm the guys that have marketed themselves so effectively. I mean, nobody believes you're that guy. Uh, what, what do you stand on some of those um, – contrasting views well, i'm looking around the room worried about having to fight my way out of here as the only <laughs> lawyer in the room but no I, i'd say three things i say number one and i've, I've said this to the south Carolina supreme court that lawyer advertising and let me qualify this i'm not talking about a local lawyer who's sure. trying to get his name out and say come see me for your legal needs in fact come see me for some of your legal needs <laughs> but i am talking about some of the folks that have gone on there and they're not even the real they're not even the actual lawyers on the tv screen pitching the firm um, lawyer advertising has gotten way, way out of hand. I'm saying that as a lawyer. So Would you number. be in favor as a lawyer of curtailing that, disallowing that to happen? Absolutely. See, I, that's, I, that's encouraging raised, to me. I've raised that issue to South Carolina Supreme Court, who has the responsibility through the bar of governing lawyers. Free speech continues to be the problem there. As an advocate of free speech, I certainly understand that. But at the same time, we have a problem. Number two, and I'd say this to the specific industry the caller was talking about, uh, just as a, you know, make sure everybody's aware of this, you know, we need to be helpful and mindful of our business owners, especially, for instance, I think this is a log truck. But also remember, those folks cause a lot of accidents. That's an inherently danger, dangerous business, so those, are, those premiums are going to be more expensive. And then number three, and this is the most important thing that does get lost in this shuffle a lot, as someone who also pays those insurance rates and sees those, insurance companies are getting filthy rich in this process. So they need to be dragged into the light on this discussion as well. It's not just the lawyers. Insurance companies have used the lawyers as a mechanism and a reason to effectively raise use rates. lawyers. You said it the other day: the businessman and the lawyer in that in that discussion. And the it's not the it's the lawyer and the in the insurance man in the discussion. The well, insurance man well, is winning. Well, I'll the make debate. a deal mm -hmm. with you right now, as a business guy speaking to a friendly lawyer. 
Let's go after the insurance companies because that's where a lot of the blame lies, and we're giving them a free pass. I'm going to be really and truly are. Philip, you want to jump in here? Well, yeah. I mean, it, this is pretty simple. You know me. I, I say there's good lawyers and bad lawyers, and the good lawyers are representing me. <laughs> Drop the mic, Philip. That, that's a, that's a um. That's not a partisan statement. That's, but right. that, that's as impartial as you could possibly uh, possibly yeah, I imagine. Up the lyrics. The song is "Get Over It" by the Eagles. Yeah, and, and it's about law. Lawyers. I mean, he's, he's talking about kill all the lawyers, kill them tonight, or something. Hmm. Jay, we don't mean that. We don't mean that. We just said em, like unemploy said, the lawyers. Unemploy. Uh, maybe yeah. maim them. We, we only got a minute before we got to get out of here. A- anything we miss? Any? I mean, yeah. You well, want to? I want to go back to you. Lured me out here last week. I didn't saying, lure you, you out lured here. Lured me out here saying we we're going to talk about you know sports and music puppies. and things like puppies. We did talk about <laughs> we did talk about puppies. <laughs> and you know, so I want an explanation. I don't have a good one other than the phone started ringing. And it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about Phillips. It's not about Mike. It's about our callers. And you say you're a, not a politician. Well, but I'm anymore. not a politician. It is about our callers, our valued and trusted supporters get their way. And when they start calling, I had all intents of talking about March Madness and music, rock and roll, country, hip hop. But but instead, the callers. We settled on calling. some good things. I'm running for president. You're running for Senate. <laughs> we're going to put him as a U.S. Supreme yeah. Court justice. Yeah. So well, Jay is if, Jay's if, gonna if, win if, too. If Rick and Bob announces, we'll go visit him in prison. Every bowl. I love good orange. Hey, we'll be back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. This is normally the hour of the week we dedicate as our decompression hour. That won't be the case today. Anytime you get a chance to have a presidential candidate on, you jump at the opportunity, especially in the world of talk radio. I remember running for office in South Carolina and sitting down with several presidential candidates. And it dawned on me, I'm a, once again, I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight, and here I am with presidential candidates. But South Carolina is a critically important state when it comes to presidential politics, and we're fortunate to have with us this morning Vivek Ramaswamy, who is a, an announced Republican candidate for president. Mr. Ramaswamy, good morning. How are you? Good. How are you doing? We are doing well. Um, I went on the air a couple of weeks ago and said that, as far as I'm concerned, you've made the biggest impact or, or impression on me as a Republican candidate for president because you're talking about big issues and big ideas. I, I know the answer to this, but i got to ask it anyway. Was that the intent? Well, the intent is actually to hey, deliver these big ideas and see them all the way through in the White House. But I'm glad that we are leading the way already in defining the agenda, because as I've said all along, this year, 2023, there's no primary votes being cast. This isn't the year about the who, okay? We obsess in the Republican Party about who, Ronna McDaniel or somebody else or Kevin McCarthy or somebody else. I think that we need to forget about the question of the who and define the question of the what and the why. What do we stand for? Why do we stand for it? And then next year, we get to pick the person who's going to be best suited to advance that agenda. Now, our campaign strategy is we're betting that the voters are going to say whoever led the way in defining the agenda, that should be the person to actually execute it in the White House next year, and I'm running to be that person. But most importantly this year is, look, I think we have a national identity crisis right now where not only do we not know what it means to be a Republican, we don't even know what it means to be an American. Most of us have forgotten it. And I'm on a mission, not just a political campaign, but a cultural campaign to revive the ideals that set this nation into motion 250 years ago, from meritocracy to free speech to self-governance over aristocracy. 
these basic rules of the road to revive that and actually to fill a vacuum in the heart of the American soul. And I think if we're able to do that, then everything from our economic challenges to our foreign policy challenges become that much easier to address. And I have detailed policies for all of those things. But most importantly, it it starts with solving this national identity crisis itself. My analysis has been that Donald Trump ushered in a political movement as a as a political blunt instrument. He is a wrecking ball. He is the Molotov cocktail. He is the middle finger to the man. But that's not sustainable, Mr. Ramaswamy. I mean, if we're going to have a political movement, it's got to have intellectual underpinning. It's got to have content, substance. It's got to have idea. Is that is that a fair analysis? In other words, Trump ushers in this newfound or newfangled way of thinking, America first. But, but it, it's got to be more than about a, a political blunt instrument or personality. There's got to be some substance here. I fully agree with that. I think that, you know, as I say, I'm a, an apologetic America first conservative myself. But to put America first, we need to rediscover what America is. And I think that if we're grounded on principle, then in certain ways, I'm going to be going even further than President Trump ever did in actually turning that into reality. For example, I'm the only Republican presidential candidate in U.S. history, I think, that has pledged to end affirmative action, race-based affirmative action in America. It's a cancer on our national soul, but it started by executive order. Lyndon Johnson started by an executive order. Every president since Lyndon Johnson could have ended it with the stroke of a pen, even Trump, but they didn't do it because they weren't standing on principle when doing it, and so then they run into political fears. Even the Trump White House, I pressed them, why didn't they do this? They said it was because of fear of political backlash. I don't have those fears because I'm grounded on principle. The whole campaign is about American national identity. And you know what? Making decisions and discriminating on the basis of race instead of using merit, that's anti-American. If it's anti-American, I'm going to get rid of it. You know, Abandoning the climate cult, this is another thing that I think is hostile to American growth. It's one of the impediments to GDP growth in this country where we'll debate till, our, till we're blue in the face about whether we need to address the deficit and the debt through higher taxes or through spending cuts to Social Security and Medicare, we've completely forgotten that there's a better way, which is to actually deliver GDP growth in this country, something we've forgotten. It used to be above 4%. Now it's well under 2%. Well, one of the obstacles is indeed the demands of this climate cult, which is like a wet blanket on the American economy. But I bring these up because these are topics that even if you're a Republican, from affirmative action to climate change, to using the military south of the border to solve the fentanyl crisis by addressing the cartels. These are things that you weren't supposed to say. These are things that GOP presidential candidates danced carefully around. I don't have those fears because I'm standing on a principled view of actually what it means to be American, not even a Republican or a Democrat. But I think that these are the basic ideals and principles that can unify us and allow me to go even further in some ways than President Trump ever did but to do it in a way that also unifies the country at the end of it. And I think that's the secret to delivering national unity today. You don't show up in the middle and say, hey, can't we all compromise, hold hands and sing Kumbaya? We're not going to get national unity that way. The way we get national unity in this country right now, and I think many of us are hungry for it, is by embracing the radicalism of the ideals that set America itself into motion. And that's what I'm on a mission to do here. When you look at America first, the, 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 the Republican Party of my father, my grandfather, was far more interventionist, far more globalist. There some, seems to be a kind of an anti-interventionist, anti-globalist stance within America first, the, I guess the strain of Republicanism known as America first. 
what what is your stance on it's just unfair to ask you what globalism in general but we don't have time for a two-hour interview here but globalism and intervention seems to be uh, the republican party seems to have evolved there um give me your take on those two issues that the former republican party and where you'd like to see the party or what you'd like to see the party become well, I think we need to start thinking of ourselves as not citizens of the globe, but citizens of this nation. That's how I think of myself. And I think foreign policy that follows from that is all about prioritization. Okay, and to me, the top two priorities in our foreign policy are, number one, declaring independence. And I really mean that, declaring independence from communist China. Unlike the USSR in the last century, we depend on our number one enemy today for the shoes on our feet and the phones in our pockets. That is not sustainable, and I think that is also something that's led us down a perilous path to be in this codependent relationship with China. I have a clear vision and plan to end that. I think that's going to be thinking on the timescales of history. And then I think the second priority for any, for any foreign policy agenda has to be to protect Americans on American soil right here at home. And that's why I think that ending the fentanyl crisis and the manufactured opioid war, the opium war that China's really in, but using Mexican drug cartels as a vehicle, to deliver it to our home soil, that has to end too. Those are the top foreign policy priorities. And I think we've got to be prepared to use even our military to secure our own border. This is a radical idea to some, but if we can use our military to secure someone else's border, we can certainly use it to secure our own. But here's one thing I'll also say is sometimes we get into these false debates where let's take the Ukraine debate that we're having. We forgot the main lesson of that story, which is if America had enough energy independence and security, that the West, including Western Europe, didn't have to rely on Russia for its gas and oil, then Putin would have never invaded Ukraine. Because you know what? The cost-benefit calculus for him would have tipped the other way if the West wasn't actually dependent on him. He could have never financed the war. And why is the West dependent on him? Because of this climate cult that for the last 15 years has shackled production in the West while leaving places like China and Russia untouched. And so I think we get trapped into some of these false debates about, well, to help Ukraine or not to help Ukraine without even asking. And, and, I, and I'm in the camp of I prioritize the foreign policy priorities I laid out rather than Ukraine. So that's where I land on that. But the bigger point is that American energy independence and energy security would have prevented us from ever being in this position in the first place. And that's really where a different kind of globalism in the form of the climate cult, that's actually what stands as an obstacle. Mr. Wamaswamy, I believe personally that uh, the the, con- the Congress has farmed out its economic policy to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve yeah. has, I mean, created debt situations in America that I think have generational consequence. What would a President Ramaswamy look as economic priorities in relation to our federal debt, our inability to constrain our spending? Well, I think the Federal Reserve itself is a problem. It's been another cancer on our national soul. It's actually been one of the policy priorities I've been talking about. I even mentioned it in my Wall Street Journal op-ed that I wrote, what, this last Sunday, this last Monday of this week. So one of my core priorities is unleashing the American economy. I actually think we can restore 4-plus percent GDP growth, which is where we got to in this country all the way up till the early 1970s, and it tapered off. Well, what happened in the early 1970s? The U.S. left the gold standard. Now. I think that that allowed the U.S. Federal Reserve to start playing God, except they played God with a fat finger. What does that mean? They mean that they try to balance inflation and unemployment. They take that on as their mandate, but they actually did a horrific job of it. So what, what would I do? I would put the Federal Reserve back in its place, saying that you have exactly one job in this country. 
It is to stabilize the dollar as a unit of measurement, period. That's it. So right now there's 20,000-plus employees in the U.S. Federal Reserve. I've said publicly I would reduce that headcount by over 90% and restore them back to that narrow function. And, and that's part of a broader pattern, by the way, that I am bringing to the federal government as somebody who's built and run large-scale businesses who understands the Constitution deeply, too. What I say is a lot of these agencies, even the Federal Department of Education, for example, is another example of this, exist for no reason. They should have never existed in the first place. And you know what? If, you have a, if you're the president of the United States and you can't fire someone, that means they don't work for you. It means you work for them. And I refuse to not only be the – if I was successful elected as president, I refuse to be a fool sitting in the White House governing as a figurehead atop an administrative state that's actually running the show. And I have deep constitutional conviction, and we've already been clear about this and will continue to be clear about the legal basis for it, really firing over half the federal government and even taking certain of those agencies and shutting them down. I won't go so far as to say I'll shut down the Fed because there's other central banks in other countries. But here's what we will do is radically reform the Fed, reduce the headcount by over 90 percent and go back to one purpose of stabilizing the dollar against a basket of currencies. So we actually have a stable unit of measurement in this country instead of trying to play financial god. Last question and appreciate your time. Um, some and this is philosophical, not policy related. Some in America believe there's a double standard. There are two sets of rules. There are a set of rules for Silicon Valley Bank. There are another set of rules for a, uh, a, a bank funded by farmers in rural Alabama. What do you say to the American, the average American who has seen up close and personal these two sets of rules? One standard applies to one socioeconomic group. Another standard applies to the other. Well, I think that's spot on. I think that there are two sets of rules. We saw that this last weekend. But I think that we need to, once we see that, with clear eyes, then we can actually move on to better solutions. I mean, take the Silicon Valley Bank situation. They said it was not a bailout of Silicon Valley Bank. Well, technically that's right, but you need to see through what happened. It's a bailout of Silicon Valley itself, a bunch of technology startups that put their money in Silicon Valley Bank, way more money than they should have, without diversifying, without monitoring that risk. The rest of America, you say that if it's $250,000, you know what, if it's above that, you don't necessarily get that insurance. But if you're Silicon Valley and you lobby for it, you do. So, you know, I think complexity tends to favor the well-connected. And, you know, my background, I mean, to just be blunt about it, I've built multi-billion dollar companies, including venture-backed companies. I was educated at places like Harvard and Yale. I was not born into money. Believe me that. My parents came to this country with almost none. But I, have, I understand how the other side is played, how the game is played, because I've lived in that world, too. I laid a lot of this out in my first book, Woke Inc., and so I think we need a leader in the White House who understands the problems deeply and first personally themselves. It's not 1980 anymore, where it's just big government that's the threat to liberty. It's this hybrid of big government and big business and even aspects of our culture that together conspire to do what neither of them can do on their own. And I think we live in the complex moment where the person you need in the White House is not somebody who's just implementing someone else's vision but it's actually implementing their own firsthand understanding of the threats, but also their own vision for actually what it even means to be American. And that's what I'm delivering here is I'm not, I haven't poll tested most of what I'm telling you. It's not from a team of policy advisors that give me these bullet points. I don't, you'll probably see my speeches. I don't use teleprompters. I don't read from speeches. I'm telling you what my actual beliefs are. And I'm hopeful that that's something that the voters are actually hungry for. It's what we're beginning to see across the country. And, you know, we'll be in South Carolina this weekend, actually, meeting with uh, many of your 
many of your listeners and neighbors, I hope, as well. You inspire me, and I mean that sincerely. If someone wants to be a part of your campaign, support your campaign, how do they, how do they kind of work through that process? Just come sign up at Vivek2024.com, V-I-V-E-K, 2024.com. And then come out to some of the uh, some of the events we're doing this weekend in South Carolina. We're at, uh, you know, the Sweet Tea Shop in uh, Dorchester County uh, at noon. We're at doing the Vision 24 National Conservative Forum, the, you know, the big event going on there, Palmetto Family Institute kind of thing at uh, 4.30 p.m. We're doing a grassroots meet and greet on Saturday. So, you know, 6 o'clock in the evening in, uh, you know, what is it, 342 East Bay, I'm looking here in Charleston. So we're going to be a bunch of places. I'll be at Rock Hill Missionary Baptist Church speaking briefly at 10 a.m. on Sunday. Come out to one of those events, but sign up with us and, and get the information and be part of this movement. It's less about me. It's more about the agenda we're advancing together. And I think that's what we think about. We're, we're just vehicles for advancing an agenda, right? Too, many, too often we wait for someone from on high to come save us. Well, when it comes to politics, no one's coming from on high to save us. If we're going to be saved, it's going to be because we save ourselves. And I'll really ask everybody here to join us in doing that. Go to Vivek2024.com and be part of the journey. Thank you, sir, and good luck. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. he says the more i think about it oh billy was right let's kill all the lawyers kill them tonight uh billy carter was a i mean obviously a colorful younger brother of the former president jimmy carter who is in hospice care hanging in there you know still living uh normally when you go to hospice care you don't live that long but carter's been what a couple of weeks in hospice care but yeah billy carter was um kind of his infamous brother so to speak billy carter said if i'm not mistaken that from the time he was 21 until about 37 or 8, he didn't know you could drink water straight. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, I mean, he lived a very, I mean, he was, yeah. he was the younger brother of the president, and he was uh, uniquely different. Now, a lot of people believe he was equally as brilliant, as smart 
I mean, you heard, who was it last week said, might have been Dr. Bolt said, you know, you could argue in a raw IQ world, Jimmy Carter might have been the brightest president of our um, lifetime. I think as a nuclear physicist, graduated from the, one of the military academies, but um, was haunted by his brother, Billy Carter, <laughs> and his antics. And Billy did say, somebody talked about, you know, what would make the world a better place. He said, well, a good start would be killing all the lawyers, kill them tonight, or something to that effect. So Don Henley says, the more I think about it, oh, Billy was right. Let's kill all the lawyers, kill them tonight. I swear, I also heard the lyric in that song, something about pitching a fit. Yeah. And that doesn't seem like something Henley and the Eagles pitching a fit. Yeah, but it fit in the word. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? It pitching and- a fit. You know what that means, and I know what that means. The one thing I was going to tell you, um, Vivek Ramaswamy was born in Cincinnati. I didn't know that. Yeah, born in Cincinnati. So was I. Um, highly educated, Yale, Harvard, all those good things. The point I tried to make about his, I mean, my interest in his campaign, he seems to grasp the big issues. I mean, there seems to be an understanding and a grasping of these big issues that are facing America uh, culturally and, and economically. And I mean, I think one of the most interesting answers is, I mean, they, you know, they think there's a double standard because there is a double standard. There's absolutely two sets of rules and two sets of laws. And yesterday, Janet Yellen basically admitted that in public discourse when a senator from Oklahoma said, you know, is this, you know, saving the depositor going to be across the board? And she said, no, only to the banks that we deem systemically important uh, that would bring systemic risk to the um, to the system. And I mean, if you think about it, I said it earlier, I'll say it again because um, we have listeners in and out. If you've been uber successful in business and you've got, let's say, six or eight million dollars in the bank and you've been, I mean, the good Lord has blessed you. You've worked hard. You caught a few breaks. You end up on the good side of business and, and, and money is something you don't have to worry about, Reb. And you've got a banking relationship that goes back to the beginning of your business success. And that banker and you eat lunch one day and you ask your banker, or is, is your bank systemically important and he says, no, I mean, we're a, um, you know, we're a $550 million bank. I mean, we don't bring any systemic risk to the banking system in America today. And, um, and the guy says, well, look, I'm going to have to move my money to Wells Fargo, or I'm going to have to move my money to Citibank, or I'm going to have to move my money to JP Morgan because Janet Yellen said in, in a public setting when asked by Oklahoma Senator whether they would protect all depositors, no matter what bank they were in, she basically said no, only to those institutions that are, um, you know, systemic risk. So, so the bank has been there forever helping the business guy. The business guy didn't get there by being stupid. So he tells the banker, look, Joe, I love you to death, man, and you've been better to me than you can ever imagine. I mean, I'd like to think I've been good to you and you've been good to me. But, but I've got to take all of my money out of your bank and put in Citibank because the Treasury Secretary said it's not guaranteed. I mean, if your bank goes south, your, your CEO makes some bad calls, I lose my money. If the banker at J.P. Morgan makes bad calls, I don't lose my money because they are, once again, systemic risk to the entire system. That's a double standard. I mean, that's an absolute and total double standard. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Everybody needs to go to Plains, Georgia once in their life. Uh, been there. I don't know if Henley or Billy Carter is plagiarizing, plagiarizing uh, Shakespeare Spears said, kill the lawyers. And maybe Shakespeare was plagiarizing uh, Jesus in the book of Luke. 
woe unto you lawyers. Uh, but then again, Luke was a doctor. But Ken Ramaswamy, I like that. Be part of the journey. That that would be a good bumper sticker. But I wanted to get to man that that podcast yesterday. I I enjoyed that. I, I watched it and. Here's a lawyer. Wilson's a lawyer. Um, but I always said, I think I said um, that you were a good interviewer. So there's like Johnny Carson's show. You have a monologue. He used to come out and talk for like five minutes. And then, but I mean, once he got that panel in there and he interviewed people, that was just so entertaining. So you did a good job with that. I know it's kind of tough to do a monologue, but uh, as far as the substance of Alan Wilson, I mean, I think he, he used a quote out of uh, one of Tom Cruise movies, not what I believe, what I can prove. They did a good job of that. He he mentioned meekness and weakness. But one good thing that that you would never hear in any other interview, he said they stayed at a, at a hotel on Exit 53 in Walterboro. And I thought about that. So these guys actually stayed there. And my question would be, I call it the world came to Walterboro. Where did the media stay at? Where did all those people reporting on that? And I would love to know that because in my mind, I think they took that little journey down to Charleston where they felt comfortable being in their own little uh, media wokeness world. And y'all have a good weekend. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Stayed in the, um, on the peninsula, in the bubble, you know, if you will, is what David is insinuating. Will folks will be with us. Next week, Will would be a quasi-member of the media. I mean, we, Rev, you and I would be quasi-members of the media. Very quasi. Uh, but, but Will will be with us next week. Um, it's kind of interesting because when Rev asked about guests on these podcasts, I said, look, the two guys that I probably had, <sighs> the, the most complicated relationship were are Alan Wilson and Will Folks. The kindest thing Will said about me from the time I announced I was running for office until the time I got thrown out of office was I had a train hot smoking wife. And he actually said this, and I think he did this to try to really get my dander up. He said, as only a girl named Tammy from the PD could be. Now he knows that ticks me off. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, Cause that's insinuating. You know what I mean? That's, that's a little bit raunchy if you will. And Will and I have, um, uh, we, we've said grace over that. Al and I've said grace over all of that. Uh, I didn't want the, to, to make the interview yesterday about that because, I mean, it, a few people are interested in some degree, but it's more about the Murdoch case. Somebody was the AG uh, prosecuting one of the biggest crimes in the history of South Carolina. I wanted to get there and talk a lot about that. But I do think it was um, interesting to frame the conversation about, you know, a, a guy that, you know, politically went after another guy. And, you know, I got angry about that. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll level with well, that. So that. And I, like I said, when we were talking about it beforehand and scheduling it, that adds a little political intrigue to the whole back and forth. But but it's also humanism, Reb, because here's what I believe. And, and I mean this sincerely. I get as mad as anybody. I mean, I get as angry as anybody. I get as frustrated with anybody. As I've gotten older, I try to settle those disputes. I don't want those things festering. I mean, I, I don't want to be resentful. I don't want to be bitter. I don't want to be... I don't want to be kind of kind of retrospectively. Some people wonder how you can do that because I mean that was that was not fun. But I mean, you know, I'll, I'll tell I you the, the only way you can do it. You want to know the, you know, you want to know the life lesson and all of that. Mm. Um, I mean, I could argue. I could actually say, God, why did you let me end up there? And when when I ask God that, you know what He says? Look in the mirror, dude. I mean, you're you're the guy who chose to do things the way you did things. I mean, nobody, you know, Alan Wilson didn't didn't you know, misfiled his documents. I mean, Alan Wilson didn't misrepresent 
you know, what was um where the money came from or how the money was was disclosed. That was 100% my doing. And that really goes back to life is unfair. So if you take my story and say, man, life is unfair, what's unfair about doing something wrong and getting caught? I mean, that's contrary to unfair, isn't it? I mean, I did something. I mean, I could go down the road of, well, they dealt with me differently than they dealt with anybody else. So what? I mean, who cares how they dealt with anybody else? And I think the one thing that, um, and I'm, 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 you know, Alan, and I've talked about this, you get up, you knock the dust off, and you get it back, you know, you go again. I mean, it may not be in politics, but you go, you go again. And, um, and, and I, you know, Alan is a friend of mine. Um, he's never not been a friend of mine. I mean, even when we were in those moments and he was doing his job, and, and, and maybe I had an opinion about the way he was doing his job. But, but I, I've, just, I've landed in a place as I've gotten older, I ain't going to bed angry. I, I may go to bed frustrated. I may go to bed concerned. I, I, I may go to bed bothered about, you know, some, something I may have said to Rev or my wife or my kid. But, but sooner than later, I'm going to try to make that right. And, I mean, it, you know, people accuse me of being blunt and abrupt and matter-of-fact. Um, maybe I am, maybe as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little more blunt and abrupt and, and matter of fact, but, um, I just think it's therapeutic, cathartic, helpful to address whatever those things are. So when we started talking about guests, I said, Rev, the two people that I probably got the most complicated relationship with are Alan Wilson and Will folks. And you knew some of those stories. Um, so, so I wanted to really, I thought those would bring kind of, kind of a humanistic intrigue to the story. Um, and Alan, obviously has a high degree of interest amongst the consuming public because he is the AG that chose to take a case. Or actually, the case was referred to him by a solicitor who basically said, I don't want no part of this. Um, <laughs> you, you, you know, good, good luck with this one, but I don't want anything to do uh, with this. So, so I wanted to get that out of the way. I do think it's interesting to our listeners and viewers to know that there's some history there. Um, I, I think I said, I don't remember. Correct me if I'm wrong. You've watched the podcast. I haven't. Um, I think I talked about the first time I met Alan. Mm-hmm. Guess who set it up? Neil Thigpen. Dr. Thigpen. Neil Thigpen said, I got a guy I want you to meet. Because I talked to Thigpen about running for lieutenant governor. And we actually met in, I think, an Atlanta bread company. And Alan said, hey, I think I'm going to run for AG. And Dr. Thigpen said, okay, I think Ken is going to run for lieutenant governor. So we were, you know, discussing what we thought we were going to do. And, um, and you both did, and, and, and then and your paths sure, crossed again. And, and during the campaign, Alan would call me and say, hey, have you talked to such and such? They're frustrated with you and not calling them back. You know, and I'd say, hey, have you talked to such and such? They gave me a little money and said they'd probably give you a little money. So it's, it's, it's a little bit like a, it's a club. I mean, it's a small fraternity of, the, of us who have, um, you know, sought public office, especially at the state level. And um, and there is a, there's a connection there. But there, there's a, uh, you know, was he always my favorite guy? No. Was I always his favorite guy? Obviously not. But, you know, you, you, you let bygones be bygones. You bury the hatchet. You move on. And, and as I said to the podcast, he had some friends. I had some friends who were friends of one another. And they strongly encouraged for about a year that we sit down and, and kind of bury the hatchet. And um, I mean, it's in Alan's best interest to be okay with me. It's in my best interest to be okay okay with Alan. So, um. Uh, you know, we sat around, you know, that we sat around probably 15 minutes after the interview and talked about other things, not, not radio related, but, um, Jennifer had, she got diagnosed with cancer and that, that worried me. That concerned me. They're young people with a young family and man, I mean, that just, that, that bothers you when you see, you know, a, a struggle like that. 
but um, but I thought he did a good job of kind of going behind the scenes at the Murdoch trial oh, yeah. and uh, when they decided and why they decided. The the wildest thing that I have to come to grips with, and 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 stick with me for a second. The Snapchat video. Remember, Alan said they didn't have that to begin with. I mean, they they already in, you know that they were into the investigation. He was their lead suspect, but they didn't have the Snapchat video. Once they got the Snapchat video, I mean, they didn't say it like this, but he inferred. We thought we had our guy. I mean, that that really confirmed all of our suspicions and where the evidence was leading us. But but once again, I don't look at it like a lawyer. I'm I'm a dude with a busy head, so I'm thinking to myself, how in the hell? Can someone sound that normal five minutes later, kill their wife and kid? I still struggle with that. If somebody said, Ken, what is the shred of evidence that makes you doubt to some degree he did it? It would be that Snapchat video. There's no doubt it's incriminating because it puts him at the scene when he says he wasn't there. I mean, it, 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 it within we, minutes of the murder, Sure, within minutes of the murder, but, but it also, how does a guy sound like that? Knowing that four, five, six, seven, eight minutes later, he kills his wife and kid execution style. I'm not talking about in a rage or in a panic. I'm talking about methodically premeditated, you know, ambushing, getting two people in a certain place that you say you love more than you love yourself and then pointing a gun and then pulling the trigger. You know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an investigator. I'm not a forensic expert, but, but once again, as a dude, how, how do you do that? How do you not? I'll, I'll ask you this. As a dude, your life gets completely and totally out of control. There is no chance you get out. I mean, there is no way you pay the debt back. There's no way you put Humpty Dumpty back together again. The only thing I can think is going off somewhere and putting a gun to my head. I mean, I made the mess. I mean, I am completely and totally embarrassed. I am distraught. I am ruined forever. There's only one thing to do. And I mean, once again, I'm not defending suicide, but you can understand that, can't you? I mean, am I wrong to say you can understand how a man, the provider, you know, the guy who everybody looks to to take care of things, he can't take care of things anymore. He is a failure, not 50% failure. He is a 100% fraud and failure. And I think most men, if found out to be 100% fraud and failure, get in a car and go somewhere and shoot themselves in the head. They don't kill their wife and kid. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I talk a lot about bent genes and things we don't understand. That's about as bent a gene as you could possibly imagine. And Alan basically said that they felt they were dealing with a monster. Cause you know, we, we had this kind of, kind of a transition from entitled and privileged, the family legacy, extreme narcissism, uh, join the club, um, sociopath. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think they're a psychopath and then monster. So how do you get from entitled privileged existence to being a monster? That that's a, that's a, once again, that's a psychological debate. I mean, that's not a, a law and order issue, but, um, but I think Alan was very proud in the way his office performed. I think he's very thankful and the, uh, the jury's verdict, because if the jury decides, you know, we're not, I mean, they find him not guilty. I mean, that's a stain on that office. I mean, that's a high profile case that didn't go your way. And he's in the courtroom day after day after day. For those that want to um, see the entire interview, it's on Spotify. It's been right. downloaded and published <laughs> uh, on YouTube, if I'm not mistaken. It's about 50 or 55 minutes long. 
And I think it goes into great detail and specificity about um, Alan Wilson's role in deciding how to go about the business and then the business of actually, um, you know, indicting and then convicting Alec Murdoch, Alex Murdahl, of, um, of murdering his wife and kid. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. Nick in Lexington. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, fellas. Ken, you know you pick up tidbits from different things. The one thing I picked up from your your uh, podcast yesterday with uh, Attorney General was when you asked him about the money, he said, you know, it was just obvious he was living beyond his means. And I have a family member who's a cardiothoracic surgeon happened to grow up in Florence whose dad was a cardiothoracic surgeon. And he makes seven figures and says, you know, I can never buy a beach house. You know, and I just think about how much, you know, I remember when I was growing up, the the heat and air guy bought a beach house. And now, you know, that's just not in my wheelhouse at all. And just, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, how we're taught a standard of living that even Alec making millions of dollars couldn't keep up. And, I, you know, I think about, you know, about, you know, your, your, your my children and how are they going to sustain a lifestyle that we're teaching them when I don't know that I can even fulfill my dad. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Hey, we got to take a break. That is a very interesting point. Um, somebody makes a lot of money, says, I can't afford a beach house. Somebody who you suspect not making as much has one. Welcome to America. Back in a minute. 